Musiala. Still full of running, and it's Goetze! It's Mario Goetze! It's Super Mario! He might just have won the World Cup for Germany! This is going to be a very familiar yet strange open for regular listeners of the podcast. Because part of it is going to be us sort of breaking down the fourth wall. But well, that's normal. We do that. And forgetting to introduce ourselves and all that. Right. Of, right. Well, that's what I was going to say is the weird part is I'm going to tr- make it a valid attempt at like putting ourselves over to use a wrestling term. Some kind of on a little bit of a wrestling kick, so like putting ourselves over means what? Like, like uh, you know, to go over, like you know, uh, people want to be fans of us after this, right? I want to okay. put ourselves over a little bit. I want to say that I'm Steve Bennett, that you're Don Russ, okay? That they can find our work at www.sportscasters.com. They okay. can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email us at sportscasters at gmail. It's probably a good idea because I think that based on what has happened in the last five days or so there might be some extra people nosing around this podcast this week so let's start from friday morning probably or no maybe we even need to start wednesday so we signed off on tuesday saying that i was probably going to record an interview with a rock star that's right right so that happened on friday afternoon shortly after I heard the news via tweets and texts and all kinds of things that, oh my God, your boy Lee Jenkins just broke the LeBron James story. Uh, Do a podcast right now and have him on right now (laughs) because Lee just broke the biggest story in the world and he has nothing better to do than discuss every aspect of it with you. He's as good to us as anybody, but... uh... right. But but despite that, it doesn't mean I think we jump ahead of you know Dan Patrick and Jim Rome and you know his responsibilities at SI just because people now know what we've been trying to say for two years that this guy is the real effing deal. <laughs> right? Like we don't just like this guy because he's super nice to us. That's a huge part of it. But he has a practically undefeated record in killing just about everything he's written since we started following his career. Yep. And I don't say that to put him over, to use a phrase maybe that I'll use one too many times in this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think he needs that. Right. So that happens Friday. Everything's going crazy. Our boy has just broke the biggest story in the sports world indefinitely. As far back as maybe the Jason Collins piece that John Wertheim broke – what was that? Almost a year ago? I don't know. In, in exclusive sense. Like, to get an exclusive right. like that, the Jason Collins thing might be the last huge exclusive thing. And that was another one of our boys did that way back when. And he came on to talk about it. If you remember, Wertheim was on days after that and broke it down for us and told us all about it. Um, so, I'm thinking, like, all right. 
I should reach out to Lee, but you know what? No, I shouldn't because that's just so – this is the time to lay off. Maybe this, the tweet to him should just be Congrats. congratulations, so pumped for you, can't wait to talk soon. You know? Sure. So um, anyway, instead of worrying about it, the interview with the rock star happens. Okay. And his and it's time to promote it. That's another thing we don't do enough. <laughs> now would be the time to promote it cuz we're going to hold it till next week. Right. Uh Jeremy Taggart was the drummer of Our Lady Peace, who's a huge Canadian rock band. They had some success in the US. They were huge in Buffalo and the border cities like Canadian bands tend to be when they start to kind of emerge and cross over. As yeah, they still do shows best around as they here, can. Right? Yeah. Saw him not too long ago. Uh he joined them at 18 right before they recorded their first album Navid and he just left the band. And we did this interview right after LeBron James. We joke about it. Uh, we talk about music. We talk about hockey. It's a cool interview. It's like 45 minutes long. Anyone who likes our show is going to love it. Anyone who likes our lead piece is going to love it. He talks candidly about leaving the band, uh, why Mike Turner, the guitar player, left the band after Spiritual Machines. He talks about working with Bob Rock. It's really cool. But it's really long, and it needs... A two, it probably needs to be part of a two interview podcast like next week. Right. You know what I mean? As opposed to what we're going to do today, which is a three interview podcast. Well, this is typically a slow time of the year for everything. Which is why so... I was booking something right, like this. Because right. this is a time of year where we do do something a little bit different. Right. You know, bring someone Pop else culture, in right. or whatever. So I record that on Friday. I go away for the weekend. I'll talk about that in one last thing. And then I come back and it's like, all right, so what do I do with Lee? Me and you talk about some ideas. Maybe we ask him to do like three things with us and like talk about it for a minute. Um, You know, maybe we do book him for his 19th appearance on our show right away. So I basically just reached out to him and said, look, congratulations. I kind of didn't want to reach out, but kind of feel like maybe I have to. What's what are your thoughts? And he kind of wrote back and was like, you know. I'll come on your show anytime, but I'm actually out on the road doing another story this week, and it's a somewhat unpredictable schedule, so we're going to have to really sort of play it by ear. And as soon as he said that, I thought to myself, you know what? I'm backing off here. Right. I'm just going to let him be on the road and do his story. Boy, Noah, I mean, when you win the Stanley Cup, you get to like have your day with it and right. cool and relax with it and stuff like this is why he's the best right i guess so did he give you a what do you know what he's working no on? i don't know what it is yeah um he just said he's working on a new, a new story and it's got an unpredictable schedule this is usually the time of the year where he does a baseball or a football type of a thing maybe it's that i don't know but as soon as he said that back to me i said you know what why don't we just wait till next week things well, will slow down for things him settle down and he wrote back and he's like, oh, yeah, all right, you know, any, whatever. Like, I don't want this to come off as we couldn't book our biggest guy on the week that it was the most important time to have him. Sure. It wasn't that. It was he would be on if, if I wanted him to be. That doesn't even sound right because it's not that I don't want him to be. It's I just thought it was the right thing to do to back off a little bit. Yeah, he would be on because he's such a nice guy. Not right, right, and because of the relationship we have right. with him. But on top of that, last week I had already emailed 
and I think I might have mentioned it on the show last week. I'd already emailed John Wertheim, who hasn't been on a bit since that last time when he came on for the Jason Collins story. Yeah, I know we talked about Wertheim. I can't remember if that I was on I can't remember if we did it on or not, because he's classic for saying, yeah, of course I'll be on. Just call me. <laughs> Which is great. It's great, except for then I call him, and he's the editor of this magazine and also a writer for the magazine. And sometimes just call me turns into, oh, man, dude, there's like 10 people in here right now. Right. <laughs> call back in an hour, and then I call back, and he's like, well, it's down to six people, but maybe try another. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. so I wasn't exactly sure, but I figured let me back off Jenkins. His story is out there anyway. Sure. Look, at he's been on stuff that you're going to hear. He's, you know, you could find. He's been on Jim Rome. He's been on Dan Patrick. He's been plenty of places. Mm-hmm. And you can hear that. Now, Chris Stone has been in Deadspin articles and a few other things I've seen around the media talking a little bit about this from the editor side of SI. Because Wertheim and Stone are co-executive editors. Okay. Remember, ultimately, they split the position. Sure. Uh, Wertheim really hasn't been. So... Our first interview today is 35 minutes with the executive editor at SI talking about the whole backstory of the LeBron James thing from the editor's perspective, what his role was, what he knew about it, what they had to do to prepare to get the site ready for a 6.5 million hit article, which is by far the most they've ever had on the website. Um, He talks really candidly about Sports Illustrated moving from uh, a print magazine as it was for so many years, something that now has to exist in a world that's phasing out print. He talks about so many great things. And I've, in an attempt to put us over, I have reached out to the Shermans, the Deitches, the Deadspins, the awful announcing to say, hey, this is here, check it out. And if you think there's merit, let your listeners, readers, whatever, know. That's not something I normally do, but I felt like, Look, at, we're doing really good work today. And some of those guys are always happy to do it, especially like the Sherman Report. He's Right. He's usually I – mean, we don't need to promote there almost because he beats us to it. Right, it? right. So that's that part. I also don't remember if I mentioned this or not on the air last week, but I was also trying to work something out with Ian Rappaport from NFL.com. And he had said he'd be glad to do it, but – he was wondering if we could book it through a PR guy right? Uh, at NFL Network, or NFL Media is really what it's called now. And um, I said, you know, anything you want, obviously. And this PR guy turned out to be just awesome. Really? Yeah. I mean, got me the time. I gave him a day, a time range. He set it up. He gave me the number. I already had the number. Uh, it was at one thirty on Tuesday. At one thirty-two, he's emailing me, "Are you on with Ian?" At one fifty, how did it go with Ian? I actually, when I finished the interview, I I called him on his cell phone and thanked him and said, "Hopefully, we can work together. I'll let you know when it's up." You know, it, it it's one of those things that I'm excited about because I know that guy's going to listen, and I'm guessing he maybe never has before. Sure, or maybe he did when Eisen was on. I don't know, but so yeah, sometimes those guys can be tough, and. Uh... So that came together. Yeah, that's good. Also, I had been out. This is getting long, but we knew it would sort of be long, and three things is going to be a little shorter because of it. But we had also 
reached out to Passon a couple weeks ago. Our OG, as we call him, which doesn't stand for anything with gangsters, but original guest because he was the <laughs> first guest on the show. The one guy's crazy enough to give us a chance before there was re- really even a podcast. Right. It was just sort of like, oh, this guy said he'd do an interview with us. Maybe we should create a show so that, you know, we're not totally wasting his time. <laughs> uh, so I had mentioned to him a couple weeks ago I wanted to have him in, and he said, hey, can we go All-Star Week? Maybe it would be cool we can do it right from, like, the game or whatever, like, afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that, oh, my God, it's All-Star Week. I got to get back to passing. So in the end, what the podcast is today is a 35 inter- – okay, we're going to do three things. We're going to do a 35 interview, 35-minute interview with John Wertheim right off the top. And you're going to hear all the really cool inside stuff about his scoop. Uh, then we're going to do a book club update about the book club book of the year, which isn't much of an update because all I have is a list of books and indecision. <laughs> uh, then we're going to give you an interview with Jeff Passan that we did from Target Field after the All-Star Game ended last night. Uh, we're going to do five on fantasy, which is going to be short but we're going to talk about rookies and then we're going to end with a really awesome interview with ian rapaport where he talks about being a father now and what that means to his job what he what he enjoyed during the non-playing season in the nfl what he's looking forward to this summer including coming to buffalo and cleveland which were the first two things he said when i asked him what are you looking forward to finding out about this summer hmm. bills and the browns were the first things out of his mouth which surprised me a little bit yeah because sometimes i think the worst thing about the bills is their irrelevance Oh, yeah. But here's a guy who thinks that this summer what's going on in Buffalo is relevant. So I thought that was cool. Sure. Yeah, in Cleveland, I mean, where else? I mean, that's right. been the talk of the sports world right. all summer. And I'm a dope because I have one of the, like, out Cleveland sports fans on the show. Like, Jeff Passan is to Cleveland sports as Dave Damashek is to Pittsburgh sports. Really? We do 25 minutes and the name LeBron James never comes up. Of, of course, when LeBron James signed, me and Jeff were like texting back and forth about it, as we did when Richardson was traded and when anything happens in Cleveland sports, we text about it, and then we got so into the baseball right away, I just forgot. So even though I have been trying to put myself over a bit and us over a bit, I will admit, I totally dropped the ball on that. I forgot he was a Cleveland guy. Yeah, yeah. He lives in Kansas some, City now. That's what I was going to say. I thought he was a Kansas City guy. Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, geez, so we got a lot to do, right? Worth on passing, Rappaport, Five on Fantasy, Book Club Update. Let's roll with uh, three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, so three things. We're going to kind of keep it sort of brief since you could almost make an argument that the first thing was that giant backstory <laughs> on the history of the week that was the sportscasters, which I hope you thought that was interesting. I think it is. If it isn't, tell us. 
If you're interested in the show, you're probably interested. You're probably in interested in that. Yeah. If this is your first time listening and you don't care about who we are, skip just... ahead to Wertheim. We're not offended. Sure. Yeah, yeah. That's why we put those timestamps in the right descriptions. So uh, yeah, we we almost like to look at this show as like seven seven separate parts that are stitched together that you can free flowingly move sure around in, and you're never gonna be out of context if you listen to it. Really? Yeah. As long as they download it. Right. <laughs> um. The first thing, obviously, was LeBron James and NBA free agency, but really, what can we add to it? Um, LeBron James is going back to Cleveland. It's a two-year deal with an option for an opt-out after the first year. Uh, I'm, I guess the story there is that that's business, that in that two years, uh, things are going to change with the salary cap, with television deals, and they're going to re-sign him. I'd be shocked if he... <laughs> Did all this to go back there for a year and pull the rug out on Cleveland again? Oh, I didn't know the details behind. He's got one year there. He, well, it's a two-year deal, but he has oh, an opt-out. I see. Yeah, that's weird. Why even ask for that? I guess it's because of business. Because it was like, look, I'll come back and be with you, but you know, three years from now, I want to make thirty million. You uh, can't give that to me today. I see. But when the salary cap goes up because of Gotcha. You know, they just signed that massive deal with Kyrie Irving, which is a max deal, right? Right, right. So I don't know what – and there's talk about maybe trying to wiggle Kevin Lovin. I don't know where yeah, that stands because I, I don't think they want to trade Wiggins. Yeah, that's all trade rumors right now. Right. So I don't know what we can add to it other than – We'll talk to Jenkins I'll say next this. week. Yeah, we'll talk to Jenkins next week. We got Wertheim this week. And the one thing that I did think about was – Boy, I'm glad for Cleveland because anytime anything good or bad happens to Cleveland, I think you could take Cleveland out, put Buffalo in, and it's the same narrative. Sure. When he left Cleveland, everyone kind of thought, wow, here's this city similar to Buffalo that has the premier player in the league and just can't keep him. And he's a hometown guy. And they can't keep him. So it's almost like if the Sabres were the team that was able to draft Pat, Pat Kane first overall, and he just bailed, and he bailed, right after getting swept in the Stanley Cup Finals, right, seemingly so close to the goal, yep. And then he goes and gets it somewhere else. I mean, he, LeBron James was in Miami for four years, and went to the finals every year. They yeah. won two and lost two. So I mean, that worked. Out. Miami, I, I would think you're ha- you're happy. You're disappointed he left, but that was a nice four years. Oh yeah. That's a fun four years, right? I mean, you got they NBA were a dynasty, right? Games. I mean, they don't. You have to win every time to be a dynasty. They it, went. No, I, I think it's it's fair. I mean, it was a successful decision. Sure, pardon the word, but yeah. So we'll talk to Lee next week, and we got more on that with uh, worth time. Uh, so number two, uh, the World Cup, maybe yeah. the best month for soccer in the United States ever. Yeah, I mean, the numbers beat out that NBA final game. For, great for the World Cup great, final. Great ratings and lots of buzz and a decent U.S. run and some dramatic moments. And and if you just looked at the box score, it'd be one of those games you're like, oh, typical soccer game, one nothing. It was it was a lot of action in that game. It was a great goal to win it. Yeah, I was watching it with with my wife, and the one thing I said is, I'm like, just let this end like on a play. Like, don't let it end on something where like. A guy falls down because you saw that a little bit. Guys were slipping a little bit. Don't have it end where someone just falls down or some broken thing or on stupid penalty kicks. And it ended on a play. It was a great play. Yeah, Messi had a really great chance to win it early in the second half, I think, was his big chance. 
and uh, didn't get it there. There was chances. It was a good final. Still, I think the crazy the story and congratulations to Germany. Welcome to the four time club. You know. Oh yeah. You know, it's Germany, Italy, and Brazil are the only countries to have four more. Brazil actually has five. Hmm. You know, uh, Italy has four. Germany now has four. It's their first one since 1990. Italy will try to keep their streak of being in a final every 12 years next year. Since the beginning, I think that's pretty incredible. Next World Cup. Yeah. Next World Cup, right, right, which is in four years in Russia, I believe. Uh, we should say ESPN killed it, I thought. They pooled their resources amazingly well. They used their resources amazingly well between the app and the network and uh, the mix of U.S. people talking about soccer and international people. They had Argentinians on the set after the game. They had Germans on the set. I just thought... It was the strength and might of ESPN mm-hmm. at its best all month, sort of. And that's big shoes to fill with our new friend, Rob Stone, and Fox Sports going forward, starting with the Women's World Cup next year. But um, the one other thing I wanted to say about this was Brazil. Ouch. <laughs> that hurt. Yeah, right? while we were watching it, I think it was up to 4 or 5 to 1. I think it was 7-1 when we finished. But Yeah, probably. You know, and uh, we talked a little bit about how I did an interview last Tuesday, and it was one nothing, and I came out, it was 5 nothing, and we all right. know about that. And then, you know, the third place game was not much better. Oh, I didn't see it. I mean, I walked, I know, I was, I was poolside on this trip, I'll tell you about later, and it's like 18 minutes on the clock, and they're losing 2 nothing already. And it's just like, this is the worst week week ever for them. I mean, they lose Neymar. They almost lost him, like, to paralyzation. If that's a word, I don't even know. Really? You know, like, that doctor said if that knee would have been a quarter of an inch higher or whatever, he might have been paralyzed out there. You know, he doesn't get to finish. Their captain's suspended because of a stupid card, you know, for the semifinal. They get just a nightmarish loss. They're branded as maybe the worst semifinalist in World Cup history. Yeah. You know, just totally exposed. They didn't have a great tournament. They probably should have lost to Chile. They could have lost on the in the opening game, you know, where they got the benefit of a great uh, penalty against Croatia, I think, on, way back on June 12th. Um, so I feel bad for Brazil because it just seemed like they deserved a little bit better there. But in reality, it just wasn't a great Brazil team, right? Sure didn't look that way, no. No. So, all right, last thing. Uh, we're, again, we're going to talk more about this with Jeff Passan later, but... I want to ask you the typical sports casters questions when it comes to the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. Did you watch any of the homerless home run derby or the Derek Jeter send-off All-Star Game where his name was said 100 times over the course of the broadcast? <laughs> Literally. Uh, dead's been counted. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. Um, no, to either. Uh, the home run derby just doesn't interest me. and Especially when it doesn't have home runs. Yeah, I heard it was wet there and like it's rainy. Brutal. And, yeah. Uh, so that doesn't interest me. And I actually was out doing other sports-related things last night and never bothered to. Yeah, you went and checked out the Sabres prospects? Yeah, yeah. So they... we can talk about this real quick unless it's going to be your one last thing. It could be. I mean, I could All use right, it well, as my last thing. Why don't we save thing. it for that? Sure, then. yeah. All right, so that's what I had down here for three things. And if you're with us for the first time or something, thank you. Yeah. I'm Steve. That's Don over there. If you're not with us for the first time, one thing we've been doing a lot is sharing these three things. And I'm not sure if that's more interesting to get both of our takes on a topic or if it's more interesting for us to each bring three. Because sometimes the ones when we're digging for six, 
we're digging for like little stories sometimes. Right. So, well, you could always email us your opinion yeah. at the sportscasters at gmail.com or hit us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You could even hit Don straight up at Don likes sports. Yeah, I occasionally tweet things. Although he's been told the sports he likes are only a few. Yeah, Don likes uh, a couple uh, sports. Don likes a couple <laughs> sports or Don likes football and hockey would be too long for me to type in every time. All right, let's uh, take, a, take a second and come back with uh, John Wertheim. Minute remaining in the period. Face-off won by Cornell yet again. Wilcox over to Ryan. Picked off by Detroit. Here comes Detroit and Day. Day wide open for Giant score! Top shelf, Anthony Day! What a finish from Day, but what a pass from Frankie Detroit. Right to the stick of Day, and Day, the critical finish. 49.8 seconds left in the period. Our next guest is from Bloomington, Indiana, and is a graduate of Yale University. He made his first appearance on the Sportscasters while promoting the New York Times best-selling book, Scorecasting, the hidden influence between how sports are played and games are won. His work has been published four times in the Best American Sports Writing Anthology and once in the Best American Crime Writing Series. He's an executive editor at SI and one of the most accomplished sports journalists in America. He's making his 12th appearance on the show today. Warm sportscasters, welcome to the great John Wertheim. How are you doing, Mr. Wertheim? You got me a 12th appearance. 12th, yeah. Good. How are you doing? Doing really good. Happy to have you back. It's been a bit. Uh, now that you're you know, the executive editor, we can't expect as much time as always. And we, I say that with utmost respect, obviously. And uh, uh, we're excited. But that just means I have a lot i got to ask you about because it's been a bit, you know. But um, there's no sense in burying the lead. Obviously, this has been a... I guess the most successful week since you've been the editor. I mean, just an amazing week for Sports Illustrated. I don't know how you want to put it in terms of your career and your influence there, but I'm curious how, what was your, what did you know about the possibility of everything playing out the way it did on Friday before Friday? Um, all right, where to start? No, I mean, I, to, to be quite candid, um, my my role in this was keeping a secret. I mean, this was this was all about Lee Jenkins establishing a level of trust and establishing a level of comfort with LeBron and his camp. And um, you know, we were sort of happy to be be part of the story and happy to provide a platform. But really, all credit to uh, to my colleague Lee Jenkins because we were able to sort of keep things quiet and we were able to prepare the the story internally but really this was you know there's there's some i mean jason collins is an example that springs immediately to mind where it's it's much more right. collaborative and much more interaction i mean this this really was about lee, lee jenkins and lebron's people having a level of comfort that enabled them to do this and we were sort of the happy beneficiaries yeah i saw some quotes from your partner in maybe a deadspin article or something like that saying that maybe as early as May, which is obviously before the season ended, before LeBron had opted out, that Lee had kind of floated this as a possibility. Was there a specific time where you as the secret holder thought, wow, this can this is might really happen? About noon on Friday. Noon on Friday. No, I mean, you know, LeBron was going to have a, you know, if you 
pardon the phrase, he was going to have a decision to make. I mean, there was, there was going to be an announcement, and it was going to be, no matter what happened, it was going to be relevant, and it was going to have impact on the NBA and on basketball. It was going to be a story, and there was always going to be an issue of, you got to do something, and we all know what happened in 2010. And if you were looking to do things differently and avoid some of the criticism that came with the decision four years ago, there there were more subtle options. But I mean, there had to be a way. I mean, you you could not address if you're LeBron, you could not have a plan. So no matter what you were going to do, was going to have to be considered. And so this this was an option that enabled them. You know, at, at some level, to tell tell the story he wanted to tell, and, and again, I, I, I liken it to Jason Collins just because I was more involved in that. Right. It's not a question of journalism versus PR. I mean, it's just a question of we would be happy to accommodate, sort of ha- happy to provide the platform to tell your story. I don't know how out of date this number is, but I saw that Lee tweeted that he had heard six point five million hits for the story. I don't know what any other story gets in terms of hits so what what how much bigger is 6.5 million than i'm assuming a lot but put some perspective into what kind of what that meant traffic wise um i you know at some level this this was far and away this was the most traffic storm this was more than jason Collins. this was more than richard sherman uh after the aaron andrews interview in, in january this this was a significant uh number of eyeballs were you happy uh, this is another thing i read some quotes about how you guys had prepared ahead of it going up for the increased traffic and you have a brand a, a new website that's launched very recently and i wanted to maybe ask you a little bit about that as well later but were you really pleased with how seamless it was because i know initially when the, the website launched there was some ba- the back end took a little bit longer to catch up there were some 409 errors but you know, here's a, a story that's going to get almost seven million hits, and it seemed like, you know, from that on that end, were you really proud of how that worked out? It held up. It, it would have uh, it, it would have not been a good thing right. to have the story to have people getting uh, four or four errors. Right. So uh, yeah, that was that was sort of a right. test for a heavy volume of traffic, and you know, as you say, the website's only a few weeks old, and it's a lot different from the old website, and it's. The, the attempt is to make it more forward-looking and then skew younger. And um, yeah, this was this was a big test in terms of a volume and functionality. And luckily, I, just, I don't think we got a single. I think four four hundred four was only the area code for Atlanta on Friday. So I think we we came through that one pretty well. Right. I think I said four hundred nine, but I'm just a. No, nah, there are there. Trust me, I've, I've become more familiar with this than uh, yeah. There there are a series of four O's. Right. But, uh, none of them good. Right. Uh, that's not the only thing that has been uh, has made the week great. Obviously, Richard Deitch was the first to the story with Pam Oliver. Uh, you mentioned the uh, the Jason Collins story, which is less than a year old. That was a huge. I mean, you could really make the argument that the two biggest exclusives in the last year in sports occurred within the family of Sports Illustrated, and that's at a time that there's been some people around saying that maybe uh, based on uh, time and what they think Sports Illustrated role should be and, and bigger picture things and maybe predicting demise. I don't know how dramatic I want to be about putting this, but do you think that the great work that you guys have done by just sticking to being journalists has maybe put the magazine in, in position to 
to make this difficult transition to being more than just a magazine? Um, yeah, I, I will let I'll let you say that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, look these these are these are obviously interesting media times, and different uh, different platforms have different virtues, and different platforms enable you to do different things. And yeah, it's it's really gratifying. I mean, this 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 was not Jason Collins is another example. Um, you know, there there's things that TV does that we'll just not be able to compete with. But I think there's there's a converse of that, and I think in some cases there is a thoroughness and a subtlety, and I think there, I think there's there's virtue to what what we do as well. And um, you know, I, I think it's it's gratifying that people still recognize that it's gratifying that sort of the, the virtues of, of journalism and objectivity and sort of everything. Um, the, the reasons why we all like what we do here, uh, are acknowledged that way. And I just, you know, I mean, I, I think that, um, you, you use the word demise, which I, I Maybe hope it's never that right? strong. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, these, these are, these are really weird times for everyone in media and it it almost doesn't matter sort of what, and everybody's multi-platform, and everybody's trying to figure out where the train is going, and everybody's trying to be ahead of the game, and, um, you know, it, it's just nice that we were able to, to sort of play this prominent role last week. Yeah, you know, I think there's some really great proof right now that it's a weird time in media that, at the beginning of this, I can say you're making the 12th appearance on this small piece of it, a real small piece of it. Ten years ago, I I wouldn't have even known like where to find you if I had a map. I I don't know. I don't have a good analogy, I guess, but that's kind of proof of that. I want to ask you one last thing and we'll move on to other things. I saw a tweet today that was sort of out of context and I tried to look into it more and I, and I couldn't find anything, but it was, uh, I can't think of his exact name, but I know he, he, he's an ESPN uh, magazine writer. I think he does the last page column there. Um, he tweeted that, he thought the criticism of Lee Jenkins and SI has been ridiculous because they, you know, there's been criticism, I guess is my question, dot, dot, dot. I, there actually is people criticizing. You've, you've caught a negative in this somehow? Yeah, I mean, for, from what I've heard, the, the criticism in the New York Times, Richard Sandemir had a piece on it. The criticism is basically, is this journalism or is this PR? Were you guys just a vessel for this PR effort? Uh-huh. And I mean, first of all, I, I can't imagine too many other. Well, I, I you know, I, I not sure we even should. Not sure what's what's to be gained by dignifying. I, I would right. say we're thoroughly comfortable with how this played out and what we did. And this is Le, LeBron's words that were sewn together, stitched together by by Lee. But um, you know, at, at some level, this this is how the the game is being played, and I don't think objectivity was was necessarily lost and i'm I, I would just say thoroughly comfortable with with how this was handled yeah not that my opinion is that important but we're hugely jenkins marks to use a wrestling term here i mean he's been on our show more than anyone 19 times uh 19 yeah it's such you me by seven it's such an honor you guys are actually one and two and that makes us really proud oh. but um <laughs> the last thing I think anyone in the world should question is that guy's integrity because he just nails it every time, and I, I don't know, that's crazy to me. I, I didn't know what it, what you were going to say because I couldn't find the criticism. I guess I, I don't follow Sandemir enough to have caught that or whatever, but 
Uh, anyway, uh, we're talking with John Wertheim, executive editor at SI. He also covers tennis for them, among other things, at John underscore Wertheim on Twitter. Uh, we talked about the website launching and about the new times. And we've talked about this before, I think, too, about the evolution of Sports Illustrated. And I've always, again, put over the uh, the iPad app how much I think the, the magazine looks great on the iPad. And as you as you kind of if you, as you guys kind of experiment with all these different things and and apps and a new website and all that, is there one specific thing that gets you the most excited? Is there one area of this that you say, "All right, this is really in our wheelhouse. This is something we can do really, really well." In terms of, in terms no, of, no, I mean, I I just think like the way the way any media company needs to work these days is it's not a TV station and it's not a magazine and it's not a newspaper. And it's not a network. It's it's all, you know. It sort of has to be all things to all people. And I love podcasts. Other people hate them, and people love the app, and other people don't. And it's just, I, I think, if I'm proud of anything, it's just sort of the versatility. Now you sort of go through the the checklist, and whether it's a video presence, which we have, or whether it's you know a, a, a tablet product that you can be proud of, or whether it's a website. I mean, I think that. Um, yeah, look, when you've done a magazine for 50 years, then suddenly someone says, you've got to be here, 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 and here as well. It's a transition. And I, I think one of the deep, dark secrets about media in general is that it's, it's all kind of fun. I mean, some of the budget pressures are not fun, and some of the, the transitioning, there can be growing pains. But the truth is, as, as a journalist, I, I love that some stories are for print and some stories are for the web, and you can do a podcast from two to three and do a video from three to four. And I think it makes the act of being a journalist a lot more fulfilling. Um, and I think that, yeah, some things have worked better than others. I think any media company would say the same thing. I think the one thing that I guess I'm most proud of sports illustrated is that it's has made and is making this, this huge transformation and the journalism has kept up and, it's sort of, you know, Peter King never would have imagined when he started at Sports Illustrated that he would have Monday morning quarterback with its own video operation and a tour bus that went to training camps and long-form pieces and infographics and data visualization. That's completely different. I mean, that's like going to a foot surgeon and saying you're going to, by the time you close out your career, you're going to do, uh, you know, you're, you're going to do brain surgery. I mean, it's just, it's at some level at the end of the day, it's medicine. At some level at the end of the day, journalism is journalism. But, um, you know, these, these are pretty big jumps we've all made. And I think that Sports Illustrated overall has, has done a really good job with this necessary transition. That's of... a corporate. Am I, am, I, am I coming across as a... Uh... No, you're coming across as very candid, to be honest, actually. Right. Well, candor's good. We don't, we don't want corporate speak. But, right. uh, no, I mean, even, you know, I've, I've been here, with, I don't know, 15 years. And it is a thoroughly different job and a thoroughly different outfit than what I started at. And yet, at some level, it's, it isn't that different at all. So I, I think that's something that sort of everyone everywhere is working with. You know, ESPN is not the ESPN it was 15 years ago. You know, Com, Comcast, you know, the NBC, I'm looking right across my, right across the street, I'm looking at the, at 30 Rock and people at Comcast and NBC will tell you it's completely different and, um, I think they're growing pains everywhere, but I think something that gets lost is that if you're a practicing journalist, to me, in a lot of ways, it's never been a better time. Yeah. A couple follow-ups on all that stuff. Uh, one is you mentioned podcasts, and we're talking on one. And 
I kind of think that that's one area where maybe Sports Illustrated has been a little bit slower to jump into. And I was even listening to, I think Richard Deitch was on Jimmy Traina's podcast that's now, he's now with Fox. And I think he was one person that said, you know, one reason that he did decide to move is because he wanted to do more podcasting maybe than uh, Sports Illustrated was ready to do right now. What, when you think about podcasts and SI, uh, do you think that it's something that you want to grow? Is it something that you said you do like them? And obviously you've done this one a lot, but what do you think about the relationship between podcasts and SI and where it's going to evolve? Um, I, I mean, personally, I love podcasts. I spend an unholy amount of my life listening to podcasts, usually on, uh, you know, 1.5 speed so I can get an hour in 40 minutes. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't think the business model is quite there yet. I mean, if, if Subway Fresh Cake wants to expand its uh, dominion, that would be one thing. I think that it's, you know, you, as a as a rational, as, as a business decision, it can be a tough justification. Um, you know, in, in some cases, I just don't think, the, the, the numbers make it hard to justify in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, I I would love to see an expansion, but, you know, you have, a, you have a finite staff and you have a finite number of hours in the day, and you know, at, at some level it, it becomes a business decision, but I, I mean, as a consumer of media and not someone who needs it to, you know, as, as, as strictly as a consumer, I love podcasts. I just, I'm, I'm not sure the business model is where it needs to be quite yet, but I, I think it'll get there. You know that, uh, that we hear, I even say, hate, to, hate to say we, but this actually happens to us more than anything we hear about what we do wrong than what we do right. And I think that that's just maybe because of the way Twitter is set up. I don't know, but you always hear a hundred times more negative feedback than positive. And the negative feedback that we hear the most is that we're too fanboy, that we're too uh, nice, that we let people off the hook, that we put people over too much. And so at the risk of getting that after this, which I'm fine with, and I tell these people they're crazy, they don't understand that all these people donate their time to us for nothing and that they don't need to do that to get critic you know, to be grilled. But um, the one thing that we get is that we're too fanboy and that we're too big of too, our, we're too big of SI guys. But what people don't understand is the reason that we're such big SI guys is because when we started this, we didn't know we'd be SI guys. We, we reached out to everyone. It just so happens that the people that represent SI, and you made me think of this because of mentioning the Monday Morning Quarterback, and since it's launched, we've had all the full-time staff on at least once, if not twice, uh, and the people are so good. And, and I'm just wondering, now that you're a bigger part of staffing and making the hard decisions, who to keep, who to let go, who to hire, all those things, um, do you agree that maybe the strength right now at SI is the people that you have working and how passionate they are for what they do and how good just like people you've be you're able to have right now yeah i i take a huge amount of pride it's been like this since i got here i, mean, I don't want to make this seem like it's a new i mean literally since the day i walked in the door the the culture here is a huge source of pride and there's there's a certain diversity in the same way you know tom, tom verducci does not write the way peter king does but i can say in total candor, like both great guys. I mean, there, there really is not an unpleasant colleague on the masthead. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, I think there's equity in that in the field. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's a reason why 
LeBron's comfortable with Lee Jenkins or why ex-athletes comfortable with Scott Price. I mean, literally go down the list. I think at some level, you know, you conform to the culture and any anyone who came in here and were a jerk would be such a standout. I mean, they, they would stand out so glaringly that even if you had horrible impulses, you might suppress them because it would be so glaring. But yeah, it's a lot of really great people with a lot of really great and well-deserved reputations. And I think the culture and the quality of people is, again, I, I, I cringe at how corporate this is coming across, but, uh, no, I mean, the, the quality of people is, is really something that I think we all take a huge amount of pride in. Well, I just told you the, the thing that we get criticized the most about. Is there something that sticks out in your mind since either being at SI or since becoming uh, an editor at SI? Is there something that you get criticized the most about? Is there a criticism you feel that you're aware of that that you would be willing to address? You can, you can say no. Um, in, in terms, in terms of your show, no, no, no. In terms of what you do, like I said, like that's what we in what we. Oh, do. in terms of uh, no, I, I um, that's tough. I guess. I mean, I think some of it is just a function of the times. I mean, I think there's a lot of criticism of of print and the future of of a magazine. And even if you do transition, if if you're core product is a magazine, does does that doom you? I mean, I think it's more, I think the, the criticism is more sort of um, a function of media than, oh, you guys are homers for East Coast teams. I mean, you you sort of hear from time to outcome, you, you know, you ignore West Coast football or you guys love the Yankees, but that that's sort of silly. I mean, it's not silly. It's every, everything is considered and, uh, taken seriously at some level, but I, I think it's more sort of platform-oriented than specific how come you do X, I wish you'd do Y differently. Can I throw one out? Two. Yeah, absolutely. We're, right. we're, uh, we, we welcome constructive criticism here. Right. There's one thing I, I don't like, and it's the, the, the cover not being the cover. I think that there's a huge – the SI cover means something. And it it means something so much that people are willing to buy commemorative versions of them. And nothing frustrates me more than last year this happened, uh, last football season. Uh, I'm a huge, huge Saints fan. I actually have every Sports Illustrated that a Saint is on the cover of, except for last year's Drew Brees one, because I got something different, someone different on the cover. And... I even reached out. I thought, hey, I know some people at SI. Someone will send me that one. I reached out to a few people. I don't have that. Like, I didn't. I'll send get, you that one. I didn't get that cover. That's not in my collection because there was five that week for some reason. And I know you're going to tell me that it's a function of the new world and and selling and things like that. But I just think that the SI cover should be one cover every week because I think it means something. The um, devil's advocate. Sure. Defense. No, yeah. I mean, first of yeah. all, this this is not a weekly thing. I mean, this week, right? You know, doesn't happen. LeBron, every week. LeBron James is on the cover, and I'll, I mean, it's Tuesday. I probably should wait a day to tell you that, but it's the cover is LeBron James, yeah, and that's going to every yeah. single subscriber worldwide. Um, you know, same. I'm, I'm just I'm looking at my shelf here and seeing what you know Ernie Banks cover of the uh, the Where Are They Now issue. So it's not every week. And other weeks, you know, I mean, if. Nick Foles, I'm, I'm looking at my shelf right here. It's funny. So, so one of them is, you know, Boston and the Red Sox, and that's national. And the next week, you know, Nick Foles happened. Huge cover 
in the mid-Atlantic states, right? Philadelphia and Delaware. Um, I, I don't know in California if they care about Nick Foles in a snowstorm. Um, why wouldn't you sort of uh, make this as regionally attractive as possible? I mean, you know, let's, if we're being honest, there's there's a business justification at some level, but just even as a consumer, you have four teams in the final four. Would, wouldn't you separate that by market so that, Louisville's getting a different Louisville gets Louisville and Yukon gets Yukon. Um, you know, so, sometimes it's a, a newsworthy story and you want everybody to get it. Other times, you know, a week 12 NFL story is, is great, but it's not necessarily for posterity. Wouldn't you want to make as many subscribers feel connected as possible? Yeah, I understand that. And I guess it is a balance between business and mystique. Maybe, and obviously in the end, business is always going to win over Mystique, and I understand that. I'm not 12 anymore, but, you know, but... Uh, but No, but I, it's, it's week to week. I mean, again, some story, like LeBron's a huge story. You're not going LeBron signs, you're not going to have one separate cover for California where you have Clayton Kershaw. But, I don't know, four, four weeks from now, if there's a, a preview and you have one story on the Seahawks and you have another story on the Falcons... I'm not sure what's lost giving Atlanta, Atlanta, and Seattle, Seattle. Fair enough. Uh, the sportscasters are here with John Wertheim from Sports Illustrated at John underscore Wertheim on Twitter. Uh, it's getting long already, so let's move on a little bit. I want to ask you a little bit about tennis because one of my favorite things of the year is when you're at a tennis tournament. You write every day. You tweet every day. Your 50 things column at the end of Wimbledon is one of the best things every year. And I'm not even the only one saying that. Many people say that. Uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, Wimbledon, what you've seen this year. Um, uh, just how about first this, just a real macro view. Walking away from that this year and then looking back now, what sticks out as the most important thing that happened during the two weeks in England? Ah, uh, Good question. T- tennis is my guilty pleasure. I, I, can't, uh, I can't quit you. Um, well, I mean, one of them, unfortunately, is just how – tennis needs to get its act together in terms of an international competition because I felt like the, the World Cup really sort of dominated sports news this summer and I'm thinking tennis is just as well positioned to take advantage of sort of international competition and it drops the ball. Um, but but coming out of Wimbledon, you know, you, you had Djokovic with this amazing moment where if he loses that match, it's the kind of thing that sets you on a spiral. It would have been six final losses in his last seven, you know, his last seven times he made the final of a major, he would have lost six of them. It would have been one of the great chokes. And for him to lose the fourth set against Roger Federer, the fans are all against him. History is against him. I mean, all the sort of karma for him to respond and win that fifth set when losing that match would have been one of the great all-time chokes, I thought was, was really impressive and shows how thin the margins really are. I mean, on the women's side, you had, um, you know, a player win Petra Kvitova, who not a lot of fans would know. I think the big takeaway from the women, more mainstream, is just what's going on with Serena Williams. This was supposed to be right. her year to really establish herself as the best ever. Not only has she not won, but she had this very strange episode where she couldn't even she didn't even catch the ball when the ball gets tossed it to her. What what's going on with her? And then you know, Rafael Nadal winning the French Open as he always does, but then losing in the middle of the tournament was, was a bit of an upset. It, it was, I mean, in, again, I think it got overshadowed by World Cup, but on, on balance, I thought it was a great event. 
it's interesting that you brought you brought up these the tennis and and the international perspective because I live so close to another country that I almost live in two countries. I, I was actually talking to someone about how forget who it was uh, an interview last week about how like on a Tuesday night when I was younger it wouldn't be crazy for my family to go to another country for Chinese dinner like because we just live that close to Canada you're out of the border yeah yeah, yeah. and um and it's hotbed of Canada right and uh, Canada was. Would blew up this year, this year because they had a, a female player make it to the final, and then and it was just last year, right? That um, that England finally had a player win. So there is it, that does exist partly, and we've seen it in our own country with how quickly there was no Americans even left in the tournament, and then how that maybe lost so many eyes in our country to the tournament. Um. Yeah. I- I feel like that goes both ways, right? On the one hand, you say, God, it's embarrassing. I mean, Canada is, is less than 10% of the population of the U.S. How is it that they have, you know, the, the hot young player on the women's side who made the finals, Jeannie Bouchard, and the semifinalist in Milos Raonic, and they have another strong player. What are we doing wrong? And the flip side of that is it only takes two or three players. I mean, these, these are not cra- crazy, you know, once-in-a-million players. I mean, these are... You know, Jeannie Bouchard comes from sort of a privileged background in Quebec, and Milos comes from Toronto. I mean, if they can do it, why can't us? Why can't we do it? And it only it only takes two good players, and suddenly your tennis fortunes are completely turned around. So there's there's some envy right now in the U.S. for the state of tennis in in Canada. But the flip side of that is it ought to give us some some comfort and some hope that it it ain't all that hard to turn this thing around. Is there anything right now? Is there a, a 15, 16 year old right now that we were hoping for? I mean, I wouldn't know. You would know way better than I if there's someone in the pipeline right now, or are we really looking at a potential dry spell here? Um, no, I mean, there, there's some players, some are farther along than others. You know, seven of the last 16 juniors on the men's side were American, including the, the eventual champion. Um, I mean, it, it's not always easy to make this this transition. T- tennis, you know, in some sports, look, you, you see Andrew Wiggins at, at age 18 or whatever, at age 16, and you say, this guy's got NBA skills. In tennis, it's a real, it, it, it can be tough. There are a lot of great junior players no one's ever heard of, and there are a lot of late bloomers, and the transition from juniors to the pros is not always so seamless. Uh, you, you'd like to think that there are players coming on the on the men's side especially, but because um, the women are not in as bad shape, but... Uh, that said, I've never seen anything like this where, I mean, literally after three, four rounds of a tournament, there's not a single American left. And when you, you, you might say it's a function of globalization or why, why should you feel more entitled? But when you grow up and the standard is that, you know, half of the last 16 are American and suddenly zero of the last 16 are, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a change. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you picked Federer going into this to win, right? I did. You did. Uh, and he almost did. And actually, I'm sure there wasn't very many people going into that fifth, fifth set who didn't think he would win. That's how close he was to winning it. But I thought we were supposed to start. I thought that, that wasn't, we weren't supposed to believe in Federer to that level anymore. What was it about his game or the games of the other three of the big four or big five or whatever that made you think going into it he, he had another rung like that in him? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, some of it was look. If he's gonna do, if he's gonna do, if he's gonna win another big title, it's gonna be on grass, which is his favorite surface, and it's 
sort of the easiest in some respects on, on the body. Nadal won the French, but has not been a very good player at Wimbledon lately. Andy Murray's been like Phil Mickelson. He has this big title in, in the U.K. in 2013 and hasn't done a whole lot since. I mean, some of this was just process of elimination. But I thought that if Federer got a good draw, which he did, and if Federer got some cooperation from the weather, which he did, um, you know, I mean, he, he's still, he's not the Roger Federer he was five, six, seven years ago when he was just absolutely dominating, but he hasn't exactly fallen off a cliff. I mean, he's still, you know, a, a, a top four player in the, in the rankings. So um, I, I just had a, had a feeling uh, he could, he could do some damage, and yeah, I mean, he came, came. I, I tell you, he, he came with, he really came within a few points of, of winning. But um, in fairness, I also I, I picked Serena Williams to win on the women's side, and she, you know, not only got blown out of the single straw, but sort of left in this very strange situation. So uh, strange is a great I, way I, to put I, it. Don't put great stake in my powers to prognosticate. <laughs> strange is a great way to put it. Last thing, and then we'll uh, we'll let you go. Um, going into the U.S. Open. In a, in a month or so from now, what 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 will be the stories? What is it that you're looking to find out in the U.S. Open? Well, you know, there, there've been there've been three different winners at all three majors for both the men and the women. That hasn't happened in, in well over a decade. And I think the big question on the women is just where is Serena Williams? I mean, again, this was supposed to be her year. It's been fairly disastrous, and I've just never seen an episode like that where a player is goes and takes the court despite being so profoundly out of sorts that let alone hit the ball over the net, they can't even catch the tosses from the ball kids. I mean, that was just the strangest scene. And can Serena Williams sort of salvage her season by winning the U.S. Open, which she did last year, or is this year just a total wash? Um, and then, you know, at, at some level, whichever player, whether it's Djokovic or whether it's Nadal or whether Federer makes the last charge, whoever wins the U.S. Open is sort of the MVP of the season for the men. So there's a, there's a lot to play for. And, you know, the other thing, too, is that over the last 10 years, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, Djokovic have won all but four of the majors. So th- think about golf and the parity and how many one-hit wonders there are at the majors. In tennis, you've had these, these three guys who have basically won more than 30 of the last 40 majors. I mean, it's just a joke, this concentration of power. And this question of whether... Finally, some new, you know, some new blood can break through, or whether these guys are still going to cling to what they have is always a good theme to follow. Uh, real quick, Fop, if there was anyone besides those guys, the guys that and you can include Murray too, if there's anyone besides those four guys that would win, was is there a specific guy you would think could be the guy to break through? Remember the name Grigor Dimitrov, who has always been this this talented player who's finally it seems like his his sort of head is caught up to his talent, who's this player from uh, from Bulgaria, dates Maria Sharapova, he sort of he's had the curse of being known as baby fed, because he has the same kind of talent, and it was sort of like Harold Miner, everybody's waiting to see when, but Harold, Harold Miner never became Michael Jordan, of course, uh, Grigor Dimitrov is now in the top ten, and really does seem like the question of when he wins a, a major is, is, is a when and not an if. Yeah, and we write all about Harold Miner in the in the where are they? Yeah, now. exactly. Yeah, issues, topical. Yeah, very topical. All right, John Wertheim is on Twitter at j o n underscore w e r t h e i m. He's an executive editor and writer at Sports Illustrated, and very kind to give us so much of his time 
Uh, thank you very much for that. I really appreciate it. Anytime. That, that gives me 12, right? That gives you 12. Got, 12 in the books. I got, I got to close the gap with Jenkins. <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right. Huge thanks to John Wertheim. I don't know if we can call that an exclusive because I don't know if it was exclusive. He very well, well may have spoke with others. I haven't read it or heard it, but what, it might be out there. What trouble would we get in if we called it exclusive and it wasn't? Well, maybe someone else who had it would scold us. Yeah, we don't have advertisers. No, we don't. All right, so we monet- Well, if anyone comes at me for calling it exclusive, I'll guarantee to split half of the revenue <laughs> of this podcast with them. Fair but, enough. Uh, thanks to Mr. Wertheim for being on his 12th appearance. It's a huge honor for us, and this is said with all sincerity. It's a huge honor for us to have the relationship we have with someone as high up in a magazine that we respect as much as we do SI. And I, this, They've always been great. And this is a theme throughout the podcast, and I think I might even say it in every interview. You only hear about you only hear from your critics, right? That's part of this, and I'm not complaining because we're small, so we don't even have that many critics. But you hear way more from critics than you do fans, and the criticism that we get is that we're too fanboy. For SI? For for pretty much everyone. Hmm. But what people don't understand, and I mentioned this, uh, me and Mr. Worth, I were actually sort of talking about this, and I think Jeff and I, Jeff and I actually have a big gag about this later, uh, so you'll hear that next, but... uh. We're not sending any checks to anyone after these interviews. Right. And they're not receiving any checks from their employers for doing these interviews. Right. Like, we, like, yeah, we hope that they respect us enough to be able to accept an honest interview from us, but they also don't come on to, like, get grilled or treated like, you know, I think we have grilled guys pretty good, too. Like, I I think we've asked, by we, I mean you mostly. As far as interviews go, I think we've asked questions that I know before before the interview we've kind of had discussions like, oh, boy, should we bring this up type things. And I don't think we are too – we might kiss our guests' ass a little bit because we really like guys like Damashek and Lee and John Wertheim. And, but I don't think we dodge questions with them necessarily. I don't think so either. And, I mean, Wertheim's a great example of someone who we've asked tough questions to and he's even gotten trouble. Right. You know, remember with Joe Pizmanski. That's right. Yeah, you know, exactly. the things that Wertheim said on this show about him got to him one way or another and, you know, Wertheim said, oh, man, I got in trouble. He said it on the show. <laughs> yeah. I'm not outing him, I don't think. No, he said it on you the know, show He for said, sure. like, oh, man, I got in trouble. I got to be careful what I say here. Right. You know, and I think we've maybe even taken something out for him that he's said before. Yeah, I don't remember. I know guys have definitely told us stuff off the air that they didn't want discussed. But, but we do our best to be fair. Right. You know, and yeah, maybe we come off as a little fanboy sometimes, but you have to remember that we are independent. And you got to keep in mind, um, it's one thing for a beat reporter to go soft like on an athlete. We're talking to writers. Like, what are we going to beat up a writer about? The the closest guy we probably could have been tough on, but I don't think we've ever had back since, is Poznanski. Um, well, we had him twice. The first time was pre-book, and the second time was after book. Right. It was almost one year ago now. It was around this time last summer. Okay, right. And I thought we were pretty tough on him, sort of. And that's the only guy... And the only reason to be tough on him at all was because he was a little supportive of paternal he was maybe a little penn state fanboy right maybe 
But that's the only. I mean, we talked to writers. How do you how do you want me to beat a writer up? Like for yeah, what? I mean, should I have went at Wertheim just now and said, "SI is reaching its demise. What are you <laughs> going to do about it?" I don't know. Now it feels like we're uh, putting ourselves to, over. Yeah, we're trying to protect ourselves. Right. I, I like criticism. I think I would enjoy the day that I get a hundred tweets telling me how bad I am at this. Because I, I mean, then it means a hundred people are listening and care enough to write in and crap on me like our biggest fans are the ones that i think give us the most grief like uh ford i can't think of his real name yeah he definitely will keep us in check sometimes yes. which we encourage because sure. we do f up plenty of times yeah <laughs> so uh we blow names like dan levy levy oh you know yeah and uh but um anyway quick book club update the update is last Last time on the book club. Oh, first, it's our turn to be pissed at someone. YouTube's, where's our Final Fantasy <laughs> thing? We had to play some jobber version because we couldn't find the clip that we use. Yeah, when we originally started this segment, I just wanted something that sounded exciting and upbeat. So I think I just typed in fanfare, like something maybe orchestral and big and cool. And the one that we've always used before, this was from Final Fantasy. And as big a dork as I am, I didn't know that. But... uh Apparently it's gone. Yeah, we can't find. We can't it today. find that <laughs> clip. We'll so now we're using like week. the video game version of Final Fantasy fanfare. Like I'm sure there's some Final Fantasy guy out there that can tell you exactly what what clip both of those are from. But uh, but anyway, last time on the book club, yeah, uh, we talked about how it's time to name the book club book of the year, and mentioned that the first winner was Jeff Perlman's Sweetness. The second winner was Jack McCollum's Dream Team, and we need a third winner. And I thought about it and came to the conclusion that I cannot make a conclusion. So I wanted to, and I did research, what were all of the book club books of the year, books of the month this year. Okay. And this is what we have. Do we have 12 different ones? Uh, we actually have nine, I believe. That's pretty good still. I thought it, I thought it might have been less because we'd spend more Ten. time on some. Ten. Good. Okay. The Squared Circle by okay. The Masked Man, which I love. I think yeah. that's a huge candidate. It was a great honest wrestling book one of the few that was uh wrote or uh was was authored outside of the web of the wwe so it was candid and honest and uh that's a a contender i mean i read all these you don't have to tell me what right yeah exactly (laughs) uh another one that you spent hours and prepared me for the interview was the kennedy half century right which we did in november ish right around the time of the 50th anniversary that's probably not winning just not it's just not in the it we did it because it was i was going to dallas around the 50th anniversary and the 50th anniversary was pretty interesting to me and maybe others and i don't know that that narrative will play six months later doesn't fit yeah it's not winning what we're doing here uh the other one was monsters a book about the 85 bears by richard cohen who is on the very short list of authors who blew us off for the interview Okay. So that fucker's not winning. <laughs> no, you gotta be you gotta be at least in consideration to accept If Artie Lang, who is another one of our authors who wrote his second book, can come on and do a fifteen minute interview with us, I don't know what Richard Cohen's problem was. Yeah. That said Artie Lang's not winning either, probably. Probably not, because we would like to have this author back and I don't know that we can get Artie. And his isn't especially sports related or yeah. Or that uplifting. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's about basically him doing heroin and ruining his life. one of the coolest interviews I've ever listened to on the podcast. We killed it. Yeah, but 
Uh, yeah, I don't think he's winning. Uh, Babe Ruth's called shot by our buddy Ed Sherman. Oh, okay. I liked it, actually. Better than I thought. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, it's consideration, right? Anything Ed does is going to be in consideration because we like Ed. Uh, Showtime by Jeff Perlman, one of the two previous winners of this prestigious award. Uh, certainly under consideration. Mm-hmm. Great book. New York Times bestseller. Uh, Jeff's a friend of the show. It's a, and it's a good work. He's not a friend of the show doing crap. Right. He's already working on another NFL book. I can't wait for it to come out. And I'm honest about that. I have no idea what it's about yet. I knew what Showtime was about long before I could say because I figured it out. I haven't figured out what his NFL book is about yet. Okay. And another friend of the show, uh, Adam Lazarus, is also writing an NFL book. I know what that's about, but I can't say. Sweet. But it'll be out soon, and it'll be a book club book of the month for sure. Uh, Up, Up, and Away by Jonah Carey. Jonah's a friend of the show. Uh, We were really excited for him to live a dream and write this book about the Expos. He was on some really cool platforms, able to promote it. I don't know if it's the winner because I didn't particularly love it because... Not an Expos guy? I'm just not an Expos guy. Right. You know, there was a lot about it I liked. I just don't know if I could honestly say it was the book club book of the year. I think if we picked that one, it'd be to put over our friend. Where I sure. Could feel yeah, like, not that he needs that for what, Like I could feel like we could honestly pick Showtime, and it's not just like because it's easy because I can just email Jeff and he can come on and right, you know, and he'll send us a gift that we can give away. Like you know, it's not <laughs> right. that. Like it was actually a sweet book, and I don't know. Uh, also, an ebook, a Cuban boxer's journey. Uh, we had that interview that was done with S.L. Price, whose book put pitching around Fidel was re-released as an ebook. Uh, the problem with th- these books is they probably cancel each other out. What would be the reason to pick a Cuban boxer's journey and not pitching around Fidel or vice versa? Sure. I guess the reason would be probably S.L. Price is the better of the two writers. I mean, he's one of the greatest sports writers of all time. They're stealing, stealing votes. It's like so, the, yeah, it's like Adrian Peterson and um, Brett Favre Jason White in the this. Sooners that year. Oh, know, okay. Splitting Heisman votes. Right. So Matt Leinard is going to win it. Although, I, you know, I don't know that either of those books are equivalent to Adrian Peterson's freshman season in Oklahoma. <laughs> but what is? Sure. Uh, Console Wars, which we love. Don did interviewing and took the book home with him. I'm, yeah, I'm reading it. Seriously? Yeah. See? Miracles happen. Yeah. <laughs> we have to actually consider this now because Don has read pages of it. <laughs> that, I didn't. I was, thought I was going to just say that's probably not going to win. Maybe we have to take serious consideration on this. I'm not sure it falls in the right subject matter either. But anyway, that's the 10 of them. Give us your input. The sportscasters at gmail.com, at sports underscore casters on Twitter. We'll figure it out by next week one way or another. Sounds good. All right. We'll take a break and come back with Jeff Passan from Target Field in Minnesota after the All-Star Game last night. Our next guest is from Cleveland, Ohio, and is a graduate of Syracuse University. He is the lead baseball columnist for Yahoo Sports and the co-author of the critically acclaimed book, Death to the BCS. He was the first guest ever to appear on the Sportscasters, and I think we recorded that interview maybe at 7 p.m. He is making his first or seventh appearance on the show today. Warm Sportscasters, welcome. Live from Minnesota, although it's not live. 
and who knows where his hotel is, maybe not in Minnesota, whatever. Jeff Passon, what's up, buddy? We are in Minnesota still. Okay. Good. That much we've got. We're out by the airport very, very late at night after what was a very good All-Star game, I think. A very interesting All-Star game, at least. For some reason, the last two days, like, one thing that just I keep feeling, like, this word bizarre just keeps coming up in my head for some reason. Like, you know, let's start with this. Okay, so yesterday you were at the, uh, you sat through the rain delay, and you went to, you, you saw this home run derby that didn't have any home runs. It was terrible. I mean, it was absolutely terrible. And there's so many things that baseball can do to improve the home run derby, and I really hope next year that the format changes and just speeds things up. But the problem is, Bud Selig said it today, the TV people want a three-hour show, and there's the worst case of the tail wagging the dog. You can't kowtow no matter how much they pay to a request as absurd as a three-hour home run derby. It's just, it doesn't play these days. And if it takes a, putting a skills competition in place beforehand, if it takes figuring out something else, uh, you've got to do it because the three-hour home run derby is just too much. And the only thing worse than a three-hour home run derby is a three-hour home run derby without home runs. If you're going to put that on for three hours, there's got to be some home runs. Yeah, and I think part of it uh, was the weather, the and weather. I think part of it's yeah. the stadium, too. I mean, Target Field's a really tough place to hit home runs. It always has been. Uh, next year in Cincinnati, I don't think there are going to be any problems with players hitting home runs, but uh, just the, the pace of the whole thing is it's not fun, and it's not enjoyable, and there, there are any number of things you can do. Uh, you know, I think one thing that baseball has to do is to shorten the first round a little bit. Uh, I think you cut it down to a time limit. You hit as many home runs as you can in two minutes, three minutes, whatever it may be, and instead of doing the number of home runs, you add up the distance of the home runs since we can track that accurately now and, uh, you know, the top however many advance. And then in the next round, maybe you turn that round until you get X amount of outs and with one or two outs left, you get a metal bat. I mean, there are so many different things that baseball can do. Uh, I think it recognizes, though, that what it did last night uh, is definitely not the right way to do it. And at least what they did last night was actually a change. So next year they can't say, well, we can't, you know how in baseball it's like, well, we can't change that because we've been doing it for 80 years or something. They did it a little bit different. It didn't work. So there's no reason they can't do something a little bit different again next year. Exactly. And I, I think they understand this year was a failure. And part of that was on the players for not hitting home runs. But part of that was just on the fact that a guy like Jose Bautista moved on and sat around for hours upon hours like literally i think he sat for like two hours in between swings and and it just doesn't make any sense to do it that way yeah so then okay so then we get to today and i'm reading some some of your tweets i think from bud selig's press conference today and you know he's talking about you know his his greatest accomplishment as commissioner is like this this, the growth of the game financially, and um, and then I'm thinking, and I was just thinking to myself, so if that's the the, the high part, what would he say the low part? And I, right away, I'm like, well, he's not gonna, he would never probably come out and say the steroid thing. So I bet if, and I don't know if it was asked, but I bet if it was, he might have said the All Star Game being a tie that one year, and that was really weird. 
And now the All-Star game today is just so weird because of the whole um, Adam Wainwright thing. And, like, you wrote about it and the story kept changing. And where do we stand as of right now? Do we think he was being self-deprecating? Or do we think he was being honest and then backtracked a little bit? Like, where do you stand on it right now? You know, I was there after the game when he was apologizing and calling himself an idiot. And I've never known Adam Wainwright necessarily to be dishonest. I've always found him one of the more interesting and candid players out there. And he is not dumb. I know there are a lot of people out there saying, oh, you know, he's he's just being dumb. He is the furthest thing from dumb. He is a very, very smart guy. And so, uh, you know, I wonder if he was being cheeky a little bit. Uh, but honestly, if he did groove him a fastball and he did come out and say it, this should not be a problem. The problem is that Grooving Derek Jeter a fastball is considered wrong in a game that counts for absolutely no reason. You know, there's a line that I use in my column that I wrote tonight. I call the All-Star game these days a meaningful exhibition. Is that not the most oxymoronic thing that there possibly is a meaningful exhibition? It makes absolutely no sense for baseball to conduct itself the way that it does in the game with 30 players used from the National League, 32 in the American League, 21 pitchers, and try and play that off like it's a real game. Because it's not. It's the furthest thing from it. Right, and then you have players who are there, pitchers who don't pitch because they pitch Sunday. You have players who got traded on July 4th. So what like is the logic that uh, Samarja couldn't play in the game because he would sabotage it for his new league or something? Like, wh- what... <laughs> Why couldn't he play for the, the, the team he was elected in? It makes no sense to me. I, I think the idea behind that was that they wanted balanced rosters because if you have a roster imbalance, all of a sudden you have a scenario in which you can say, one, you know, they're playing favorites for one league. And again, when the game counts, you can't play favorites for one league. It's, it is just so beyond stupid and I'm so tired of it. And every time I rip this stupid format, I hear from someone at MLB saying, Bud disagrees with you. And that's, look, that's fine. They, they know my position on it. And uh, I think of all the rules in sports, this is the dumbest. <laughs> and, and they let fans vote for the starting lineup in this supposedly, that's and, another, right? I mean, yeah, and they should because it's a freaking exhibition right. game. And because it shouldn't mean anything. You know, the point I make in my column is very simple. Uh, do you know the score in the game where Bo Jackson hit the home run off Rick Rushel? No idea, but I can picture the home run in my head right now. You can't. And do you know the score in the game when Ted Williams came back from the war and hit two home runs? or the score in the game where Reggie Jackson hit the roof at Tiger Stadium, or the score in the game where Carl Hubble struck out five straight Hall of Famers to start the game. No, you don't know any of those because the score in All-Star games is irrelevant. What matters is the moments. And if it took Adam Wainwright grooving a fastball to Derek Jeter to get him leading off the game with a double down the right field line and leading to a two-for-two game... I am a okay with that. I am just fine with that, and 
Glenn Perkins, someone whom I respect a great deal, said uh, he something to the effect of he did the right thing. Baseball, by making the game count, does the wrong thing. I don't think we disagree even slightly on any of this. I, I, I don't. I just. I'm laughing because uh, we always get criticized for like being too fanboyish with our guests, and I, I'm just thinking to myself right now, like, oh, you got passing on, and you just agreed with everything. But I mean, I just, I literally just agree. I mean, the only two All Star game scores I can remember is tonight's, which I'm pretty sure was five to three, but I'll forget that by next week. And I think the one that was tied was seven seven, but that's kind of a guess and I might be wrong. Uh I think that is correct. I'm not positive about that one either though. Right. So that's I mean I, 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 I do not and look there's a there's a savant out there who knows every all star game and that's perfectly fine. But I, I just think that it, it was very interesting to see the whole thing unfold on Twitter tonight. You know? Yeah, I put I, I put the the quote from Wainwright out there, and uh, you know it just starts blowing up immediately, and then Aaron Andrews for for some reason starts blaming social media. I don't get why because Adam Wainwright's the one who actually said those words to the media, and Wainwright starts seemingly backtracking a little bit and. You have this whole odd scenario in which people can't believe he would actually say something like that or it would get misinterpreted. But uh, the truth is, after the game, you know, we like it was asked of Wainwright, did you misinterpret, like, or did we misinterpret this? And he said, no, there's a reason that I'm not blaming you guys because he knows how he said it. He knows what he said. He knows how it came off. I mean, it, it, one of the funny things of this whole you know, controversy is. Do you know? Do you know what like a pipe shot is? Uh, no. In baseball, uh, <laughs> baseball is such a dirty sport. It really is. It's like just gross, awful words. <laughs> and uh, the the worst pitch you can throw. Pretty much every pitcher will oh, say, "Okay, a, down a, the pipe. I got a, it." Mm-hmm. What's that? I think I got it now that you're saying it. Now I feel stupid for not knowing, but go ahead. No, no. Yeah. Every pitcher will say. I mean, normally they don't say pipe. Normally they say it's a cock high fastball, or right. a dick high fastball, or a dick shot, or a cock shot. A pipe shot was like the nice way to put it, and, and I applaud Adam Wainwright for doing it because, uh, you know, if cameras weren't around and if report, you know, if cameras weren't around. I don't think he would have said pipe shot like he said. But that's what he was doing. I mean, he's look, he said, I'm going to give him a couple of balls to hit. And Adam Wainwright has so much movement on his balls. Okay, that sounds weird. Adam Wainwright <laughs> has so much movement on his pitches that, uh, you know, you can throw him a cock shot and it might end up dipping down to his knees. And... And so do I think he entered there with the idea of letting Derek Jeter double down the line? No, I don't think so. But do I think he was bearing down and trying to throw his greatest and finest pitch like he would in a playoff game? No, I can guarantee you that wasn't the case. Right, and you mentioned Aaron Andrews, and he didn't have, I don't know how much of the – wow, did Fox have a bad night tonight? I mean, as I, I did not see any of the broadcast, so I honestly don't know. I, I that was just relayed, 
you know, uh, on Twitter, how she was talking right. about social media. I, I don't know what the what the particulars or details of it were. Well, the Aaron Andrews thing totally came off as strategy. Like, oh my God, this was said, this is out there. How can we cover this up for Major League Baseball kind of a thing? Totally came off that way. Um, they, for some bizarre reason, put this three, the three-minute Tony Gwynn tribute, they buried it on a Fox Sports 1 postgame show. And basically infuriated everyone in the nation that they said the, the the name Derek Jeter 100 times during the broadcast and Tony Gwynn zero. Um, I still have no idea what Harold Reynolds is doing there and why that's not John Smoltz. It's a different issue, but it was really just strange today. And I don't know. They just oh, and then at the end of the game, the this these, the the panel there was like, okay, we're gonna send you to some comments with Derek Jeter. And instead, it was this prepackaged thing, and it kept flickering. I don't know. They just, oh, man, they struggled tonight. It was bad. It's going to be one of the bigger stories, I think, uh, coming out of this All-Star game. It's like, what was going on with Fox tonight? Like, they were just not, did not, they did not have their A game either. Thankfully, I am not much of a media critic because I know what it feels like. Yeah, the, the Deitches <laughs> of the world. I leave that up to the experts. Right, the Deitches of the world are going to love that for sure. Um, but, uh... So I should know this, but I don't. How how did who decides who wins the All Star Game MVP? And do you think the quote from Wainwright cost Jeter the MVP? You I mean, know, I have no problem with Trout winning it. I don't mean that, but yeah, I we were discussing it. Just Tim Brown and I sitting next to each other in the in the press box, and we both thought Trout was going to win it. Um, just because he deserved to win it. Yeah, absolutely. Even though I yeah. think that ball might have been foul, the double down the line. Yeah, it might have um, been. It might have got a piece of the chalk, though. That did it. I didn't it see, like, did they do, yeah. like, a phantom cam on it? I, did, I didn't see a phantom cam, but I saw it, like, six or seven times. It actually happened in one of these moments where I was, like, kind of multitasking, and I didn't have the sound on. But, like, they, I did get to see it maybe five or six times, and it might have caught some chalk. Might have. Okay. So, All right, fair yeah. enough. It was it was a very very close play, so I don't know for sure on that. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think the Wainwright thing had anything to do with Jeter not winning MVP. I think that Mike Trout hit a double and a triple and is awesome, and he had the game winning RBI and uh, giving it to giving it to Jeter in a situation like that would simply look too contrived. Right. Yeah. No. I, yeah. I, I, I just it felt like. After the first hit, it's like, okay, he's going to be the MVP tonight. And then after the second hit and uh, almost out and I don't know, I just thought, oh, this is uh, – and maybe I was just being a little cynical after when Trout won it. Like, hmm, I wonder if that was like a change because of the whole we don't want to give the MVP to the guy who maybe got a pitch sort of groove to him. I don't know. But, um, yeah, just a strange night for the for the All-Star game. I, didn't, I don't know. I thought it was a fun night. I enjoyed night. it. I, yeah, mean, I, I thought it was, you yeah. know, the Jeter performance was great. I love Trout. Cabrera hits a home run. Darvish throws an Ephus pitch. Glenn Perkins gets the save at his hometown park for the hometown team. I mean, I just think there were a lot of good storylines tonight. And uh, it was it was a fairly well-played, you know, decently pitched game. Uh, and... There's a lot of talent in baseball right now. I mean, yeah. There really is. You know, you miss a guy like Garrett Richards at the All-Star game who deserves to be there, but most of the guys who were there, they're pretty good ball players. Now, 
there are still too many All-Stars, and I still think that the participation trophy aspect of the whole thing is silly, and I think that they need to cut down on the rosters just so we can see the best of the best of the best play for like six, seven, eight innings. So we see pitchers go three or four innings at start the game, and you know we don't have this scenario in which you have reliever after reliever after reliever at the end of games. I, I think that part of it just is is subpar but by and large uh there there's certainly enough uh enough good baseball players i think to fill out smaller rosters and make the game potentially even better and more competitive you know one other thing that i think is going to get a lot of run now is the decision to not start kershaw because that just seems like such a no-brainer and then it doesn't he doesn't get the start and then it you know it's the whole like hindsight you know well it didn't work out, right? And right. now, you know, the game one of the you can you can almost make like I can hear this narrative like, oh, we got to go on the road to play game one of the World Series because the manager of the All Star game shockingly did not put Clayton Kershaw as the starting pitcher. Yeah, uh, three other managers hadn't put Clayton Kershaw as the uh, as the starting pitcher either, though. And Clayton Kershaw has been, you know, the best pitcher in the National League for just about that long. So he's, it's amazing that he's never started an all-star game. And uh, Adam Wainwright had a great first half. Adam Wainwright had, I believe, three more starts than Clayton Kershaw. And the level of dominance was not there necessarily, but it was close enough. I mean, Adam Wainwright, to me, is a perfectly legitimate, understandable, and fine choice to start. I would have gone Kershaw, but... It's not a runaway by any means. It's a very, very close race. Yeah, and you know, we're like maybe two or three more Tommy John surgeries away from them setting pitching machines up out there, <laughs> you know, pretty soon anyway. So I, I, I think I, I don't know if it was text or tweet or email to you, but it, man, did you f- pick the right topic to write a sports book about? <laughs> I mean, you, <laughs> you, you I, just, I, I mean, at first, I remember the first time we talked about us thinking like, man, is anyone going to want to read about elbows? You know what I mean? And wow, you, you were, you were ahead of the curve on that. And I, I don't know, but that book is going to, that book is going to kill. Like, I can't wait to like talk, read and talk to you about that book. Like I, I can't wait to, I can't wait to write that book. (laughs) Great. (laughs) No, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, if I don't screw it up, which is eminently possible, but if I don't screw it up, it should be a really good book because the stories are great, the characters are great, um, the the whole thing just I think comes together really well. And there there's you know there's triumph, there's tragedy, there's uh, there's heartbreak, there's uh, you know the the interesting side with statistics. There's the human side. There's the economic side. It, it really does blend, you know, every good part of a sports book. I think together. And uh, there's still some good reporting left to do. I'm going to Japan uh, in a couple of weeks to uh, take in the culture there, and uh, I've got some uh, some other trips planned at this point that are going to make for I think some really good reading. You know, I was just thinking, like, maybe 
before Moneyball, that that idea for the book, I might have had the same reaction. You know, like, is anyone really going to want to read about that? Right. And then maybe it was just came out, like, at the right time. And I wonder if, I wonder if a few years from now, um, you're no longer taking my calls because you are <laughs> in the middle of writing a screenplay for this book or something. I yeah, I will, I will always take your calls, and I don't see that necessarily being the case. If I can write a book as half as well as Michael Lewis does, uh, I feel like I will be in a very good position. Yeah, maybe maybe I'm uh, being a little unfair to you by making that comparison, but it was just a passing. No, thought. now this is the part where you're kissing my ass. Right now, I mean, I'm, it, now I'm getting. I'm gonna get the heat now for sure. Like, yeah, yeah, you should. Yeah. You deserve it. All right. You know what's really weird about it though is like that it's still a bit for like a bit of a ways from coming out, and you you're so openly discussing it, like because you know like Perlman is a guy who's like incredibly secretive because he got burned with he's you know with the Bonds book and. The, the guys from San Francisco put theirs out like around the same time, and he says that's why it died. And like, I know another author who's writing an NFL book who's like DMing me and like, oh, you can't tell anyone what this is about. And it's like, are you paranoid at all? Because like, and we even have guys on like on Monday, and their articles kind of be an SI on Wednesday, and they're like, you can't put this up before Tuesday if we're going to talk about it. It's like, all right, man, what's going to happen? Like, do you have any no, other- I mean. I've, I've spent two years on this. If somebody's going to try and catch up to me and do as good a job as I, I have, then you know, I, I applaud them for trying it. But I feel like I've I've got this story and this idea better than anybody else, and I think it's really newsworthy and important right now. And I, and I want to get people interested in it. You know, it's one of those things where you're right. If you're writing a book about the arm, what? And when you put it that way, it's like, okay, it's kind of a snoozer. But when you put it in the respect that Major League Baseball has a giant crisis coming in the next 10 years because all of the things we're seeing this year are not going to get better because they haven't done anything. They haven't done anything yet at the lower levels of pitching where all this stuff starts. And because they haven't done anything, you've got an entire generation of arms who are going to have gone through this flawed system. And we don't know what the right system is yet, but we do know what is not working right now, and that's what they're currently doing. All right, well, Jeff Passan uh, writes for Yahoo Sports, occasionally decent, usually shitty. He also tweets sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lousy Twitter feed at Jeff Passan, but maybe maybe you'd find interest in it. I I, I usually I, I actually might block him after this, but uh, I, I would I would recommend an unfollow. <laughs> but uh, and I had like some stuff written down to talk about today, but we've talked too long about other stuff, and now I'm just going to throw this in the trash, and it's mostly his fault, not mine. Uh, but um, no, I'm you're kidding. catching up, Steve. I'm, right, I'm kidding, obviously. Uh, Last thing I'll ask you, and then we should go to sleep. But um, <laughs> I ha- this is like ten questions into one. So now the All Star Game is over, and we're moving forward into the second half of the season. And we got a lot of teams who are in the races. It should be a really fun second half of the season. Just give me two or three things that you're most looking forward to see play out. What are you as a writer really? What are the stories? Two or three of them that you're really looking forward to. I want to see if Mike Trout finally wins the American League MVP award that he should have won each of the last two years. I want to see what happens to Masahiro Tanaka's elbow. And I want to see uh, what happens over the next uh, 
two weeks or so with a trade deadline. And if big names like David Price and Cliff Lee uh, and others get moved, and ultimately, of course, I want to see who wins the World Series because I have no idea at this point who it's going to be. None. I mean, if I were to guess, I would say Oakland and the Dodgers. I think those are the two best teams. But it's playoffs, man. It's, uh, it's a lot, lot different, I think, in baseball than it is in some other sports where you usually have it fairly chalk, especially uh, especially with the NBA. And, you know, I'd say more often than not in the NFL. NHL is a little different, but with baseball, I think the, the randomness is always ever-presently there, and uh, it's part of what makes October as special as it is. Yeah, especially when you have so many divisions with two teams that seem to be really good and so close. Yep. There's going to be a team... There's going to be a really good team maybe this year who doesn't get out of that one-game playoff. Uh, I don't. I don't know if I'd go as far as a really good team. Okay. Because I don't know how many really good teams there are in baseball right now. That's fair. But it, there, there will be a good team that goes. Right. Uh, no question about it. Because there are a lot of good teams right now. Real brief follow-up uh, with. David Price, who's kind of the biggest name out there, if he were to move, is there a team that you have in mind that, like, if he moved to that team, that could put them over the top? Dodgers. Dodgers. I mean, if you go into a playoffs with uh, Kershaw, Granke, Price, I mean, Price is your three, which is probably what they do to go lefty, righty, lefty, Uh, and, and then Ryu as well. I mean, it's that's just devastating. It's unfair. And something the Dodgers can do both prospect-wise with Jack Peterson and Corey Seager and Julio Urias and that they can afford monetarily as well when David Price is making $20 million next year. Thank you for this. I had fun. This was, uh, this was neat. And just hey, and uh, the only thing is don't forget in a couple months or whatever when I email you again, this was your idea. Just don't forget that. I, I will. I never forget. Right. I'm an elephant. <laughs> Thanks, bud. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonette Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right. I want to thank Jeff Passan from Yahoo Sports for being on the podcast. Had a lot of fun doing that from Minnesota yesterday. Uh, we did that late last night, and it was a lot of fun. It's always great to have the OG in the fold. That was one of the great victories in the history of this podcast, was almost blowing it with him. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then rebuilding it up to where we're at with him now, which I think is really obvious when you listen to – Jeff and I talk. He might be the one guy that I interact with the most when it's not about the not show. Not related, yeah. Like, we'll just talk about sports stuff on text occasionally. Hmm. You know, so thanks to Jeff for being on. Uh, I think we're going to stick with Five on Fantasy for a while here. We both are kind of, like, excited about fantasy right now. I'm coming over. I'm going over Don's house on Friday uh, for, like, the rules meeting for our league. It's kind of like that time of the year. I got real burned out on fantasy football last year and we almost like almost sort of walked away from it completely as far as the podcast goes for most of the season last year like we yeah, we, we were both had some sour grapes we about our lousy got, teams yeah real sour <laughs> i don't know if it's like we just had a bad year and we took our ball and went home sort of or if there just is really so much as 
the way Matthew Barry put it in his book of fantasy football coming out of the shadows that we just got burned out, you know. Uh, but right now we're into it, so right now we're going to do stuff. Last week we talked about rule variations, and we got some help on that. I thought it turned out great. Yeah, some of those that were discussed I'm going to bring up on Friday to try to incorporate it somehow into my league. So Right, and uh, this week we wanted to talk a little bit about rookies and – breakout players and the reason we were thinking about this is because while i'm on my honeymoon later in the summer don is probably going to sub for me at a draft in a league that we talk about on the show a lot where rookies are drafted separately before the actual draft right and i have the first pick in that draft and i also have the first pick in the regular draft and i also already have because of the rookie system doug martin as sort of a free player who will be my second pick in that rookie draft. So I'm going to have the first rookie off the board and then Doug Martin is my second round rookie draft pick. Right. And then I'm going to have the first pick, which I've already declared is absolutely going to be Adrian. How long do you get to hold on to those rookies? Well, you can keep them for nothing for their, the season you draft them and two after, and then you can keep them indefinitely after that, but at the cost of their ADP. So last year I was actually in a situation where I had the second pick in the real draft. And it had Doug Martin and LaShawn McCoy, who was no longer going to be Rook, your rookie. My rookie. I would need to use him as ADP. Gotcha. His ADP turned out to be round one. one. So I would have had to keep Martin, keep that that as a rookie pick, and as my first round pick. But you, oh wait, you have to keep him as both? You don't get a second pick. It's sort of silly. I see. So basically what I did was I didn't keep Martin or McCoy because I said I can still draft him at two. I know Adrian's going to go one. So oh, I can yeah. still draft sure. him at two and have a pick in the rookie draft. I probably would have done that anyway. And it was late, and I ended up getting picking the best guy left who was, believe it or not, Jonathan Franklin. I think I had the 11th or the 12th pick in the rookie draft. It didn't work, but right. I picked – Jamal Charles second overall, and that worked. Sure. And it all didn't matter anyway because Doug Martin, Randall Cobb, and Reggie Wayne went on IR. <laughs> so that team went to shit. Uh, but rookies. Rookies. Uh, Matt Williamson is with ESPN, and he has an insider article, which unfortunately is behind the paywall, which discusses the, hop, the top 100 players if you're specifically playing dynasty-type leagues. And, you know, that means... LaShawn McCoy is number one. You know, a guy like Adrian Peterson, who's probably going to be number one pick in most redrafts, is down there like in the 20s. 25. You really you agree with that? Oh, God, no. But I'm not objective when it comes to my man, Adrian. But about like over Gronkowski? Like Gronkowski's ahead of him. Isn't he just as... That's nuts. I guess the argument would be the running back shelf life is just lousy. And, and they, they do drop off at a blink. Right. And they talked about... The, the rankings that they did two years ago. And there's like five running backs that were in like the top bunch that like Ray Rice is a great example of a guy who was like number three. Do you know where his first rookie is on this list? I believe his first rookie is Sammy Watkins at 14. Oh, geez. I didn't even, I skipped right by him. Good for, good for Sammy. So that's what I wanted to ask you is what do I do with that? Who is the best rookie in fantasy so far? See that is it Sammy Watkins? 
Is it Mike Evans? Is it another wide receiver like Brandon Cooks or the one that the Bucks picked, whose name is escaping me right now, from Florida State? That's Evans, isn't it? Didn't the oh, yeah. Um, Carolina. Uh, the, ta- the big kid. Yeah. yeah, I can't think of his name right now either. We'll get it in a second. Or is it one of the running backs? The big hype right now is with the Tennessee running back because the Titans, uh, Bishop Sankey, because the Titans have a guy who's maybe garbage and Sean Green is their starter. Calvin Benjamin. Calvin Benjamin is the big that's guy the, yeah. that's in the NFC South as well, or the NFC South had some big wide receivers come in in the draft this year, and Julio yeah. Jones is coming back too. So right. NFC South has got some big red zone receivers when you talk about guys like Jimmy Graham and Colston from the Saints who are great in the red zone. When you talk about Julio Jones and Roddy White, who you think are going to have bounce back years in Atlanta, you know uh, Benjamin and Carolina, Mike Evans and Vincent Jackson and Tampa, yeah. Tampa, uh, but so is it a guy like Sankey um, at a running back? Is he the best rookie? Um, and then the other part of this is breakout guys. What about a Joyke Bell? What about Trent Richardson? Where do where do you stand? He was probably number one on this list last year. Sure, right? He was the guy that. And I think if you had him in in a league that works like yours, where you get to keep him as a a drafted rookie. rookie, you're probably still keeping him because you at least know he's the starter, right? I would assume he's the starter on that team. It's not they Donald gave up Brown. a first round pick for him. They're not ready to give up on him yet. They're right. going to give him a huge shot again. And if I were doing this today, I would have a tough time with it. Um, I would have a tough time picking any if if I had to pick it today because I was drafting today for some reason. I pick Sammy Watkins, and that's because a he's maybe the most dynamic player that was drafted this year b he's on my team so that's fun like and we've kind of said in the past if you got a tie pick the guy you want to root for um and see you just never know about rookie running backs like chances are one of the rookie running backs will be more valuable than sammy watkins this year but until the preseason plays out a little bit and depth charts play themselves out it'd be tough to say I don't want to be lame, and I was the one who decided to do this today, but the answer might be that we don't know yet. Right. That things have to play out a little bit over the summer. When The way my league is set up, which isn't the end-all, be-all, there's other leagues that with different rules, but the the best thing you can do is hit on a rookie running back because running backs, there's less of. And if you can sure. have one for free going into the year and knowing that if you use your first-round pick on another one, you have two top 10, top 20 running backs already set after round one. That puts you in a great position to start stockpiling wide receivers. But more than any year that I can remember recently, the wide receivers that were drafted in this draft are the guys that you have to really might be the ones to hit to get the next Julio Jones, a guy who's going to be a top five wide receiver every year he's been in the league except for the one where he was just injured all year. Yeah, I mean... If you're in a true dynasty league where you're drafting, basically, you're only keeping rookies, everyone, and right. you're drafting only rookies, then I'm going for high upside running backs, probably. Or I don't know. That's tough. I guess you got to draft from need a little bit there. And if you're drafting early in that, it means you got a lousy team to begin with. So you got to dig out. So I think if I'm drafting early and I had a bad team, I'm trying to hit on one of those running backs. Uh, but it's just so hard to tell who's who. It, that's totally different from a league like yours that just kind of has like a bonus round where you draft rookies or like a standard league where rookies don't have much value at all. You know, I mean, 
if your league has any keeper aspects, then you take a shot on rookies. If it doesn't, though, maybe Carlos Hyde isn't worth a flyer at all this year. Right. I mean, those are the names. You know, the Carlos Hydes. Uh, we mentioned Sankey. Uh, there's also a potential breakout guy in Christine Michael in Seattle, who we talked about already. Right, who's not a, not a rookie, rookie, but a right. breakout potential sure. guy. Um, you know, so... Where does Eric Ebron get drafted? Like, if he becomes... Jimmy Graham, I mean, maybe he's the best player on the board. Right, and what are your rules at tight end? Is that considered a wide receiver? Is it a separate position? Sure. You know, is getting a guy like Ibram freeing you up to not have to worry about tight end, and maybe you pick a guy uh, later, and then... I would love to do a dynasty league for all these reasons. It, it is a tough league. It, it's a tough thing in that if you've got casual players, it might be hard to get a player to come back to his 2-11 and 11 team the mm-hmm. following season, to drop his cash to play again with the team that's garbage and try to fix it but i think it is cool to play real life gm basically one last question and i think we're going to move on but um if you were if you if you were if you were up and you were picking between cordero patterson from the vikings or any of the rookies this year do you have a preference Pro, oh, any of the rookies. Right, so like, let's say you're up and you're basically deciding between you know Evans, Watkins, Cooks, and I th- Patterson. I think that's tough. I think I still probably want Sam and Watkins. maybe we can throw in um, from the Rams. Um, I, oh, uh, Tavon Austin. Tavon Austin. Yeah. Thank no, you. I think I want. I think I want Patterson more than Austin. Okay. So but, he's the best second year guy in your mind. Yeah, those. So two, do you anyway. want him or do you want one of the rookies? Boy, if it's the rookie, like I said, it'd be Watkins, just because it's my team, and I mean it's an easy argument to make. Um, boy. All right, stuff to think about. I, I think I take Watkins only because he's my guy, and there's no guarantee that Matt Castle or Teddy Bridgewater is any better than. And we've said annual, it so. over and over on this podcast. Our number one philosophy is when you're tied and you need a reason to break the tie, pick your guy. Right. And the Bills pick didn't the guy sh- that you're going to have the most fun watching. The Bills almost have to make Watkins work. They gave up that first round pick next year. He's going to get probably 10 targets a game. And on October 19th, when the Bills are playing the Vikings. How much more fun is that day going to be sure. if you're starting Watkins and, yeah. instead of the guy on the other side of the field? Sure. But All right, let's take a break, and let's talk some more football with Ian Rappaport from NFL Network, NFL Media, and all their platforms. Our next guest lives in Dallas, Texas, and is a graduate of Columbia University. He spent time covering the Alabama Crimson Tide for the Birmingham News, the New England Patriots for the Boston Herald, and today is an NFL media insider at the NFL Network. He's making his third appearance on our podcast today, but the first ever on the Sportscasters proper. A warm Sportscasters welcome to the very talented Ian Rappaport. What's up, Ian? What's going on, man? How are you? Pretty good. How are you doing? You're a guy who bad, does. You're a guy who does fatherhood right. You got social media accounts for your for your child, so that you know he's out, he's out there. Yeah, early. I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's right or not, <laughs> but 
that's that's what we got. And you know, if he's 16 years old and decides he doesn't want to be on Twitter, we'll probably shut it down. Uh, he's holding it down now. He's holding it down. Yeah, you enjoying uh, enjoying the the life of a father. It's it's different, man. It, I mean, it's great. Don't get me wrong. Like it's it's awesome. Um, just you know, I, I used to. I remember when I was when I was just starting my career, and you know, you talk to talk to veterans and older guys, and you know, they'd say, "Oh man, I can't wait to get back from the road so I can see my family." And you'd sort of be like, "All right, like interesting. Like I love the road. Like I wonder if I'll be like that." And you know, now it's just so different. I and mean, I'm going to leave for a training camp tour, and um, you know, about a week or so, and. I'm dreading the thought of leaving him, um, you know, and that's that's something that's new and great and, and just a um, you know, just a different challenge. And you know, the other part of it is in my life and in my job, news happens at all times, at any times. So you know, this morning I'm you know I'm feeding him breakfast and Jimmy Graham okay. stuff breaks, and right. you know, then it's like, well, how do I feed him and make sure he doesn't uh, dive into our fireplace? And also get, you know, get the Jimmy Graham news and go on TV and talk about it. And it's, uh, it definitely makes life uh, a little different than it has been. You know, the nice thing, and I was thinking about this for some reason recently, is that at least, like you're talking about the vets that you used to look up to and talk to, the nice thing for you is at least you're doing it in an age where FaceTime and Skype and things like that exist, where the world is a lot smaller than it was even 10 years ago. Yeah, and that's a nice thing, and, and you know that's what it's going to have to be. Uh, unfortunately, you know when I'm on my on my camp tour, and uh, I know it's only going to be harder because you know when he's five or six, then he'll really understand that I'm leaving for uh, a lengthy period of time, and that's going to be hard. Uh, right. It's you know it's reality. Um, but it's just it's it's going to be a little different. It's not something I'm really looking forward to. But it's just going to be, you know, something I have to deal with, like um, like a lot of different things in in parenthood. Right. Well, that that's all very interesting. I hope that wasn't too personal, but thank you. It's interesting to <laughs> to look be- life, you know? look behind a little bit. Yeah. You know, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about your sort, and I, I hope this is right. I don't I don't want to say you are something you're not, but it seems like you're kind of the guy that has got the spot that was maybe once Michael Lombardi's, and then maybe went to. Uh, Jason Lackenfora, and then now you're kind of in that role, sort of, or one of the guys in that role, or however it works. But yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's fair. Right. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the job that you know Adam Schefter had when network was when the network right. was Schefter, starting, yeah. and Schefter was first. You know, that's the right. job Jason Lackenfora had before uh, the two sides parted ways, and he went to CBS. So yeah, it's that job. Right. So we've had all those guys in the past, and, and talked to all those guys, and we've talked to you as well. And and one thing I was thinking about is as the job itself has evolved. So has the NFL Network, which they almost the network is now part of the bigger thing of NFL media with all these different areas. You do you wear so many different hats, whether it's like you said, talking on TV or writing on the website or jumping on some of the podcasts that you guys host or all the different things. What do you think about the way that that job has evolved, and is that maybe what is most exciting about it? All the different things that you kind of get to dip your toes in. Yeah, I mean, I I really like all the different things that we do. Um, It's just, you know, it's, to me, the most important thing about the job is is really, you know, communicating the information and the news that people want to hear. Or even if they don't want to hear, the stuff that they need to hear. And what I like is that there's a lot of different ways to do it. You know, you, you tweet something out and then, 
you tweet a little more out and you go on TV and talk about it and then, um, you know, you, you go on TV again and then you call into a radio show and then you're on total access at night and, you know, now it's going to be NFL now is going to be starting. So there'll be a way for people to dial us up on their phone and, you know, see a whole bunch of different things that we need to, that they need to see. I mean, there's just, there are so many avenues now and so many different ways where you can get your news. Um, and I like it because, you know, you want to serve everyone and you want to give everyone a chance to, to understand what's going on. And now, um, you know, there's basically everyone has a chance to learn whatever news they want in whatever way they want, which I really like. You know, we're getting towards the end of what you guys at NFL Network called the non-playing season. And we're going to move into the playing season soon. And I'm sure that that's a little bit more exciting in a work uh, point of view. But I wonder, is there a specific thing during the non-playoff playing season that excites you the most? Is there, uh, now that this is a 12-month-a-year job more than ever, is there a certain thing when the games aren't being played that you look forward to, to doing the most, being around the most? Um, I love the draft. Um, I love you know covering it and being there you know, sitting to the right of the stage at Radio City. I mean, that's just, you know, you sit down there and it's just one of the most fun things that we do. It's, you know, it, it's, you don't know what's going to happen. You study for months and you still have no idea. Uh, and then, you know, you basically see teams reinvent themselves over the course of three nights, maybe soon to be four nights. And, you know, they're, 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 they're your future superstars. These are the guys you're going to go to battle with for, um, you know, for the next extended period of time and, and how it's all going to shape up. And I, I mean, I just, to me, um, the draft is one of my favorite weeks. There's so much news. There's intrigue. You don't always know who's telling you the truth or who isn't, but, um, that just adds to the challenge. And, you know, it's part of our jobs to figure it all out, which I'm okay with. So, um, yeah, you know, that part is really great. I love that. I got two quick follow-ups on the draft. One, as someone whose title is NFL Media Insider, how do you feel about the way your network and yourself deals with the idea of people getting upset about spoilers on Twitter and things like that? Because that's become a big issue the last couple drafts. Yeah, no, it it really has. And, um, you know, I I work for the network. So, um, you know, I want people to watch our draft coverage. I want people to learn who's drafted by watching on TV. Uh, I didn't, you know, spoil any draft picks this year. Um, I could have. We all could have. I mean, that's, you know, I'm sure Schefter, not I'm sure, Schefter could have too. You know that. Um, to me, it's more like, you know, ruining, you know, ruining the results of a sporting event before it actually happens. Because the draft, I mean, the whole thing is, you know, it's not news that to be broken, essentially, if a team picks a guy, you know, that's the result. That, that's like, you know, it's like if you can tweet this player's about to score a basket before he does in basketball. It's like, you know, doesn't that really just take away the entire fun of the game? So um, I like that. It was basically a moratorium except for one person basically, um, you know, tweeting picks. Um, I like that people can turn on the TV and learn for the first time. Um, you know, who drafted who. I mean, I'm, I'm, definitely, I'm definitely for that. Did anything happen at the draft this year? Maybe it's not one thing, maybe it's a couple, but that when it happened, you said, I can't wait 
to see how this plays out. I want to make sure I get there this summer to see how this works out. Is there anything that now looking ahead and looking back that you, you that you're just really chomping at the bit to get a hold of and look into more and see how it's played out? Yeah, I mean to me it's it's Cleveland and it's Buffalo. Cleveland and you Buffalo. No, it's Johnny Manziel and it's it's Sammy Watkins. The two biggest newsmakers of the draft. Um, you know, Buffalo pulling off that blockbuster trade up for Watkins and um, just really going all in on offense around EJ Manuel. Um, and I don't know which way it's going to go. Um, now, I think Sammy Watkins is going to be a great player in the NFL. But, you know, is, is that enough for Buffalo to finally break their playoff streak? Um, I'm just I'm fascinated as far as how that's going to work out. You know, that, that's one of them. And then um, it was a long wait for Johnny Menzel. certainly added to a lot of our drama uh, on television. But uh, as far as just from a pure football standpoint, I'm curious. Like, what's it going to be like? You know, is he going to start? Is he going to be good? Um, is he going to be the guy who was in college? I mean, there's so many questions that you just simply cannot answer until they actually play games, play a lot of games. And um, those are probably the two spots I'm looking forward to most. All right, cool. I'm interested in those uh, a little bit. Let's talk about those for a second. So I'm in Buffalo, and uh, July 1st is quickly becoming a day that Buffalo sports fans are going to every year wake up and hide through the day. In 2007, we lost both of our captains of our hockey team in one day, and now we're, you know, and, and as a result of that, the Sabres had the worst season, arguably, in the history of the NHL last year. Uh, the Bills lost their star linebacker, the one draft pick in like the last 15 years that you can look back on and say, wow, we finally hit one. I mean, the Bills had a long streak where they didn't draft a guy who made their pos- the Pro Bowl at their position until Jairus Bird. I forget who the guy before him was, but it was a long time. You know, and this was the pick they killed. They hit it, and it was the right spot, middle linebacker. And there's so much optimism with Kiko, and he goes down for the year. And I kind of joked on Twitter that, Twitter that day that, you know, E.J. Manuel woke up with no arms. And it was, a, it was a blow, but everyone in Buffalo just shrugged and said, well, that's kind of how it goes here. Do you think – Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a lot I mean, of talking you know, it's, without it's, a question. Look, it's, right? it's tough um, to lose – you know, to lose a star playmaker like that in the way, I mean, any, any injury is bad, but in the way it happened, you know, he's working out away from the team, which is fine. A lot of guys do that. Um, but, you know, it's basically like they had no control over it. It just sort of happened, just dropped in their lap. I mean, that's, that's bad. Um, but, you know, um, we've seen a lot of teams overcome worse injuries than this. Um, the Bills, I think, are going to be improved. Um, you know, we'll learn how much they're improved with how well they can withstand an injury like this. Um, right. and they were going to have injuries this season. It's going to happen. It always happens. So, you know, obviously it sucks, certainly losing a guy like Kiko Alonso, but, um, you know, really, you'd like to have him for the season, but if you're not going to, you'd like to have a replacement tab as early as possible. So it's bad, but it's not all bad. Well, you know, and it happened down in Dallas there as well with Sean Lee, and it happened in Atlanta. So that's three huge linebackers before we even get to the season. Last training camp, it seemed like, was the, the spring of ACLs. You know, it just seemed like some, or long season injuries, it seemed like it's happening every day there for a while. Do you think that we're seeing 
more of this simply because it was going to happen anyway because of the physics, just because of the sheer size and speed and power of the athletes? Or do you think that when the system changed over the last lockout and the way things were structured, that maybe that might be an an opposite reaction that we didn't anticipate? You know, yeah, with, I think it just sort of happens. You know, right. I mean, I don't, I didn't get the sense last year there was more than the previous year. I mean, I think what happens is when they all happen in a row, just feels that way. It just feels like that. You know, I mean, it just everyone goes, "Oh man, another ACL," and and, and it's horrible. I and mean, I hate. You know, it's a part of my job that is very important is updating injuries, and I don't like it because it always is. Yeah, this guy's out for the season. I mean, it's. And it's calling people and saying, hey, is this guy out for the season? I'm near close with this guy, but, you know, did the worst thing in his career just happen to him? I don't really like that part of the job. But it's important, and I do it because it's part of what we do. But I wish it didn't happen, and I hate the injury factor in the NFL. But, um, you know, sometimes it's just, unfortunately, that's the reality. Yeah. My brother plays D1 hockey at Yale. And uh, you know how, like, when, when you'll, you want someone to tell you the truth and you'll say, like we would say something like swear on your mother's grave or something like that. They actually say right. like swear on your ACL. <laughs> you know, like that's that's like an athlete wow. thing now. Like swear on your ACL that you're telling the truth. Like I've never heard that, but that's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's I guess man, maybe it's a dorky Ivy League athlete thing. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> um, well, I was an Ivy League athlete too, so. I- not all dorky. Well, maybe that makes it more dorky. Oh, my brother's the coolest guy in the world, you know? I just, I mean, he's his older brother, so I have to call him a dork once in a while, you know what I mean? But the reality is, you, you know, he's a national champion. He's a cool dude, you know? But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cleveland is crazy, too, because Drew Brees and Sean Payton had their debut in Cleveland last time the season. They played a season opening game there. This year, it's the second week of the season that New Orleans goes to Cleveland, but it's going to be the first home game for Manziel and his coach. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, Josh Gordon hasn't done them any favors, obviously, this offseason with the crazy thing he's had. And we know that wherever Johnny Football goes comes a circus of some kind. Uh, And now LeBron James is bringing even more uh, spotlight onto the city of Cleveland. You know, I'm waiting to wake up tomorrow and find out the lake is on fire there again or something. But um, how do you think... Do you think that Cleveland specifically has the organization in place to keep all of this sane and create an environment where an NFL quarterback can get the work in without the distractions, hurting him in the huddle or hurting him on the field? Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't really think that they're they're too terribly related. You know, I mean, it, it's going to be fun for the media in Cleveland. It's going to be fun for the fans. TV ratings are going to be better. Uh, games are going to be what, more well attended. Stakes are going to be higher on the field because more people are paying attention. But as far as actual work that it takes to be a football player, uh, I don't really see it affecting anything. I mean, you know, you know, Johnny Football is a guy who obviously uh, is his own person as far as how he acts off the field or how he purports to act off the field. Um, I don't think anything is going to change that. I mean. You know, if, if Drake and Justin Bieber are hanging out more in Cleveland, is that really going to change things? Well, probably means he's not going to have to, you know, fly to Vegas as much as he would have liked during, you know, time off. I mean, I just, you know, plus, I mean, I'm not even convinced that he's going to be the starting quarterback week one. So if he's not, then, you know, how much do we really care about a backup quarterback's off-the-field right. uh, activities, you know? 
Mm-hmm. And we've seen so many athletes that they just got to get through those couple years. Like Patrick Kane is a great example of someone who's matured so much. Uh, LeBron James is even a great example, maybe. Of the way he handled his first run at pre- free agency and the way he was perceived after compared to the way he's rebuilt his reputation in his time in Miami. So it's almost just like there's just they just got to get him through that little hump. And if they can, you know, and, and, and maybe that's even being too judgmental because, honestly, what do I well, know? I mean, it's, yeah. it's, but it's the same thing in life, you know. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't have I'm a better reporter now than I, than I was when I was 26. It's just, you know, unfortunately, we just have to watch a lot of these guys go through it because right. they're public figures. Right, and neither of us would have wanted to have the eyes on him at 21 that he does. You know what I mean? Uh, I probably would have wanted it and then not realized what it was about, which is what all these guys do. You know what I mean? That's, part of being a celebrity kind of sucks. Yep. Because yep. everyone's watching, and when you're out hanging out at a Vegas club doing the money phone, um, somebody takes a video of it. And if I was 21 doing the money phone, first of all, I would have to do it with Monopoly money. But, <laughs> you know, nobody would have taken a video of it and put it on Instagram. But Johnny Manziel, LeBron, they live different lives. Right, mine would have been better like, or worse. Mine would have been student loan money. I was flashing. It would have yeah. had had an interest rate over the top of it. The sportscasters are here with uh, Ian Rappaport from the NFL Network's NFL Media Insider. There, he's going to be all over NFL Total Access, which is moving back to seven o'clock. It airs Monday through Saturday. Got a few minutes left, and we have to talk about Jimmy Graham, the Saints, and the whole picture of the tight end position. Yesterday, I was getting alerts. You know, in the morning, it was Jimmy Graham is going to appeal his ruling. Uh, then later it was Jimmy Graham and the Saints are going to close this out. And since I've been following this, I always believed in the end Jimmy Graham was going to get a $10 million contract of some kind for some length. Do you think that the other tight ends, the other players in the league, the NFL Players Association is almost a little bit disappointed that this particular situation didn't get to appeal? Do you think that they were really hoping that Jimmy Graham would ultimately win in front of arbitrators and maybe change the way this position is designed for the guys who are going to have to go through this after him, the Vernon Davises, the Jordan Camerons, all the other guys in the league who play this kind of hybrid version of the position? Yeah, but I don't think it would have been realistic to say that you know the, that he was going to win. I mean, the right. appeal was a Hail Mary, a long shot. Um, uh, you know, I never got the sense, and maybe I'm wrong, but I never got the sense from anyone I was talking to that there was any hope of him winning it. So, you know, he appealed basically as a safeguard in case they couldn't get a long-term deal done. Do you think, um, So, sorry. you know, I, I don't think those guys were holding out waiting for the results of his appeal. Do you think the arbitrator made a fair ruling? If you were the arbitrator, is that what you would have ruled? Uh, you know, I, I just, I haven't studied the numbers enough to really know. I mean, I read the, you know, obviously I read the ruling and, um, you know, I just, what I would do probably isn't as important as what Stephen Burbank, the arbitrator, ended up doing. Fair enough. Do you think that being, obviously he did re-sign a long-term deal. Do you think that there was any damage done through this whole process in the relationship between Jimmy Graham and Drew Brees or Jimmy Graham and... Sean Payton or Jimmy Graham and the Saints organization in general? I really don't. Um, and, you know, that's the worry. I mean, that's the worry with something like this is that, I mean, the, you know, the Saints testified against him. Right. You know, they went to court and tried to get him to be worth less money. And instead of that being a real issue to divide everyone, everyone kind of shrugged. Um, and that's... You know, that's really an amazing thing, and this is how business-like it was for everybody. Um, and I thought it was, you know, I thought it was a pretty cool thing that it didn't, it didn't become really, really personal. 
do you think that speaks to the culture of the Saints uh, program, or do you think that speaks to the culture of where we are as a league in general? Um, you know, I, th- I think it has to do with the Saints. I think you know, Jimmy Graham is, is pretty mature, pretty businesslike. Um, just, he's got a good agent. He wouldn't let him become personal. Um, I think the Saints have been through a lot where, you know, they just, they just kind of soldier on through these tough issues. Right. Um, I thought everyone overall just handled it really, really well, really professional, and it could have been ugly. It really could have been ugly, but because of the way they handled it, it was just kind of business as usual, and then we had a ruling and it got fixed, and that was it. Pretty good. Unbelievable. Uh, real quickly, I'm going to let you go. Uh, any of the other franchise players that um, time's ticking on here on June, uh, July 15th, you think we're going to see any other long-term deals, or are we going to have a few guys on one-year deals? Uh, I think it'll be one-year deals. Arakpo, Hardy, yeah. I mean, Hardy's in in court today, um, That's so his long-term deal's not going to happen. No, not that it would have anyway. And, um, you know, it's always been the expectation of um, – you know, the Redskins to have a Rackville play out as one-year deal. Another quick thing, do you think Andre Johnson ultimately stays in Houston, or do you think he weasels his way out of there? I know you wrote, you wrote about it on NFL.com, too, if people want to see more about what, your opinion on this than you might have time to get to here. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't, you know, Texans don't want to trade him. I know that. They've made that clear. Uh, he doesn't want to play there. He's made that clear, so... Is he really willing to sit out um, and retire? I mean, we'll find out. Um, but, you know, they could also decide to pay him his million-dollar bonus and make nice with him. Um, that's certainly another option. But at this point, all we know is that it's all on the table. Yeah, million-dollar b- bonuses can be great Band-Aids sometimes, you know? Yeah, they can. <laughs> All right. Uh, Ian Rappaport is an NFL media insider for the NFL Network. He's very kind enough to have made his third appearance on our shows. Uh, he's at RapSheet on Twitter. It's going to be all over in the next couple of months. NFL Total Access airs now at 7 o'clock every Monday through Saturday on the NFL Network, which is 212 on DirecTV. Thank you very much for this. Where are you headed training camp? Where, where are you going? You said you're going on a tour. Are you going to be West Coast, East Coast, a little bit of both? What's, what's your summer like? Uh, hopefully I'll be everywhere. Uh, finalizing the schedule today. so I'll, uh, We'll see. We'll see. I know it's going to be fun. I know that. Thank you so much for all the time. Anything else you wanted to get out there? that I didn't cover plug-wise or anything about where people can find you? Nah, you did a good job, man. I all right. appreciate it. Thank you so much for all the time. Uh, covered a lot there, and uh, it was really fun. Thank you so much. All right, no problem. Take care. All right, I want to thank everyone for being on the podcast today. John Wertheim, Jeff Passan, Ian Rappaport. I want to thank everyone who helped us put the podcast together today. Uh, don't forget, uh, I'm Steve. That's Don across the way. <laughs> yeah, don't forget that. Uh, the sportscasters at gmail.com is our email. At sports underscore casters is sort of my and the show Twitter. It's sort of morphed itself into a combo of the two over the years. Sure. And uh, Don is at Don Lake Sports on Twitter. You can find all of our work, our previous shows, this show, www.sports-casters.com. We make it available on any platform you let us know about. It's out there on Stitcher. It's on iTunes. It's on Downcast. It's on Instacast. We always say if there's some way you want to hear it and can't, let us know, and we'll try to make it happen. Sure. Um, 
uh, we're going to close this thing out, and Don's going to start that. All right, one last thing for me this week. I am going to talk about a little city pride, I guess. Um, Buffalo fans are notoriously maybe thin-skinned when it comes to people talking bad about their city, and I just want to – I'm probably no different. But uh, I wanted to say that when I wasn't watching the All-Star game, I was I went downtown. The Sabres had a uh, prospect camp. I think it's just anybody that's still under their – Entry-level contract. And then invitees. Who, okay, right. Who It's a misconception. I love college hockey players, but know that if you're a college hockey player who's an invitee to a camp, which means you're not a draft pick or you're not – obviously, if you're in college, you're not under an entry-level deal yet. Right. You have to pay to be there. You have right. to pay to get there. You have to pay some amount to be there or you could risk your eligibility. You can't take oh, like, right. gear – so keep in mind that sometimes the invitees are sort of filling out space and and but in the same sense you can be an invitee and really show yourself and go from being an undrafted free agent to having a team already that's interested in maybe signing you. Sure. As we've seen a huge increase in college free agents being signed by NHL teams and then making an impact right away. Right. Yeah. Um but yeah, it was a great night. It was free. Parking was free, but I think they didn't expect so many people. Maybe yeah, almost eight thousand. The almost nine. Announced. Yeah, yeah. It, was over, it was over. eight. Um, I don't know how they count that without tickets. I don't either. Yeah. Someone clicking something on the Good way in. I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we ended up paying five bucks to park. It was super close. The food all seemed cheaper than regular game prices. Like we got like two cups of fries and like for like five bucks. So it. And everything else was free, so we took the hundred bucks or whatever we would have spent on the night, and we we got some food for us and our daughter. We got uh, a couple t- like a shirt for Molly, and uh, I, I did see the pictures. It was just an awesome it night, all very adorable. And yeah. I say that in 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 the not mocking way, like it looked like a really nice family night down there. Right, you just sit wherever. So yeah. before while the warm ups were going on, I got to go down right to the glass with Molly, see the main man Reinhardt there, um, take some pictures, whatever, and head back, watch the game. I maybe didn't get to study the prospects the way I would have wanted to if, if my daughter wasn't there, but that was cool. That was the hockey side of it. Afterwards, well, Hold on. One more th- one thing yeah. I want to ask with the hockey side of it. I want you to tell me that, one, Reinhardt was the best player there, and two, <laughs> Samuels Thomas was the worst. Uh, they, they definitely put guys with – like Samuels Thomas was noticeable on a line that was going to hit anybody that was out there. Like that – well, that's the only way he can make it. Sure, is by being just a bull. He's a very strong hockey player. Like I said, I didn't have, I couldn't give a ton of attention to the game. But when Reinhardt was out there, I was watching him. He seems very poised. I heard he got hit a couple times pretty hard. I don't know that we need that happening. <laughs> yeah, he seemed poised. Uh, the guy I was gonna say that seemed like a man amongst boys out there was Zadorov. Oh, Zadorov. Yeah. yeah, he hit everything. He was chirping the other team the entire time. Uh, talking to his own players he just seemed very it seemed like the game was almost slow to him so i don't know if he was just out there having fun but and grigorenko out to lunch no i you know what i i my seats weren't good either they were very low so it was hard to see a lot of it from what i heard grigorenko kind of his line controlled play they just didn't score okay like the guys that scored goals like the first couple of goals were kind of fluky so i wouldn't like say okay this guy's got something going because he scored like the first one was a missed shot off the wall, and the the guy scored. But all in all, it was a really cool thing. The atmosphere in the arena was awesome because 
I mean, it's hard time to be a Sabres fan because the team's so bad. But these are the future. These are the promising guys that we're watching play. And there's tons of kids in the crowd, and nobody paid anything to be there. So everyone's just kind of like feeling good about the night. And uh, that part's all cool. After that, um, Molly likes boats. So we saw boats from the gift shop out. It's a good spot to find boats right there. So we walked out there to check the boats out. And while that was going on, people were starting to like congregate because they were doing like a movie showing on like one of them giant inflatable screens. They were showing Goonies, I think, that night. So there were people around there. It was a beautiful night for that. So we looked at the boats. They had ice cream and popcorn and stuff all for sale, like on that boardwalk area there. Uh, the Harbor Center is going up, and that's looking beautiful. The new hotel is right across there, and they've got a cool little fountain that Molly liked. And It's just a real cool night for the city. And uh, I said to Michelle as I'm walking out of there, my wife, I said, I am not a city guy. I'll probably always live in a suburb. Uh, I don't enjoy the city life but i do take pride and i enjoy knowing that that's there for me when i want to when i want it and uh i said to her we got we should seek more stuff out down there for a rust belt town it, things are really looking up and i mean i'm not the first one to say that but it's exciting hashtag buffalo exactly right right 716 or whatever that's <laughs> yeah, today right today is seven. oh it is day. look at that yeah. yeah all right uh one last thing for the podcast if anyone is still listening because this is maybe Approaching the six-hour mark. It's a marathon, yeah. But uh, I had a great weekend, too. Although, I guess yours wasn't on the weekend, but whatever. Uh, on the weekend, my brother Anthony was home for a golf tournament he plays at Holiday Valley, which is in Ellicott View, Ellicottville, New York, which is south of Buffalo. Right. And maybe is the ski best country. place to ski between here and Lake Placid, <laughs> including for anyone south of us in Pennsylvania and west of us in ohio sure it's a huge ski resort in the winter and they have a beautiful golf course and a hotel resort and they also have weddings up on the hills and you actually take the ski lifts up to get married up there really yeah and there was a wedding going on and colston is going crazy right now he's loving the yeah people are today. coming over for like some makeup thing or something for the <laughs> wedding and uh colston needs to bark at all of them even though it's like people he sees all the time yeah that's a pain in the ass. So sorry about Colston. So if you're, you haven't listened before, that's uh, Colston is on all the time. You, you know what we haven't had in a little while? Now even the one last thing's getting long. We haven't had a police siren come by in a while. No, we haven't. That used to be yeah, like every podcast. Right. That was more in Studio A or whatever we called Bob's house. That's right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, but um, anyway, so I was in Ellicottville uh, while my brother played in this golf tournament. It's a really nice place it's almost like a vegas resort back there there's all these swimming pools and me and my other brother greg were chilling by the pool while we were waiting for anthony to finish golfing and there was a wedding going on and we had heard rumors that logan couture was there okay and so we're kind of keeping our eye out for him i really didn't care at this point really to be honest because whatever logan couture yeah i'm just not into it like i'm not gonna get his autograph right i'm not gonna really probably talk to him not going to try to get him to come do an interview on the podcast. So we've done that with athletes and it's bombs. <laughs> it does. But uh, uh, point being that uh, so we're watching these people come up from the wedding, right? And, oh, there's Couture. Okay, he must be here for the wedding. And then behind Couture, one of the other groomsmen was Drew Doughty. Really? And behind him was David Backus. Wow. So I look into it a bit. 
Right, and I, I know Couture is out there on social media because of his hashtag Bill's Mafia stuff. Okay. And uh, so I Google him, and I find his Instagram, and it's like a picture with the boys. And, yeah, that's Dowdy next to him. And he's just getting killed by Sharks fans. Like, what are you doing with hanging out with Dowdy? <laughs> you know, it's, there's like 90 comments, and they're all like, I'm effing Couture for being in a wedding with Dowdy. Oh, uh, yeah. And But I figure out that the kid that's getting married was a goalie for Canisius. When Vinny and Conacher played. Okay. And he's from London, Ontario. Ontario right. And so is Dowdy and Couture, and they're all about the same age. Okay. This kid is in 89, and so is Dowdy, and I'm not sure what birth year Couture is. He might be a little, a little older younger, than right? that. Isn't he younger? No, I think he'd probably be a little older or the same age. He might be in 89, too. Huh. I don't know where Bacchus fits in. He was like a USHL guy who played at Minnesota State. So I don't know, but um, Bacchus is an '84, so he's quite a bit older. Okay, and I have no idea about Couture, but uh, anyway, so we see these guys, and then we have a nice night with the bros, and that was cool. Couture's then, also an '89. Okay, so we're walking out on Sunday, and if you follow our Twitter, you'll know that I spent most of the spring sort of saying like Drew Doughty is the best player in the NHL. Right, based on resume. Based on resume and the way he played in the spring. He was... Sure. Him and Patrick Kane sort of had a battle for being the best guy out there. And I said on this podcast, I thought Dowdy should have still won the Smythe, despite the strong finals that... Yeah, the guy that won it, I think, would have been my third pick. uh, Justin Williams. Justin Williams, right. But anyway, when I was walking out Sunday, checking out, leaving, uh, I saw Dowdy. We kind of walked by each other and made eye contact. So I said, hey, congratulations on a great spring. The second cup. He said, thank you. Shook his hand. And it was cool, I guess. Yeah, sure. It's always nice to be able to pay your respects to someone you believe is one of the best players in the National Hockey League and the world. Did he seem nice, humble, whatever? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah, cool. wearing a Blue Jays hat. Nice. Shorter than you'd think. Still got long hair and facial hair. He's the other guy that couldn't famously do a pull-up, right? At his yeah. combine. It worked out, though. Yeah, he's doing okay. Yeah. All right. Next week.